0: The OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, October the 25th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program this morning. Let's go. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air 273 or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, happy Music NL Week to those of you who celebrate. So it's always a great week of performances, an opportunity to network and meet with some record label execs, and of course with the gala that happens on Saturday night, giving out the awards, well I guess industry awards are given out at a luncheon. I'm a four-time loser of media person of the year. Uh, And then the Gala Awards that evening, hosted by our very own Ben Murphy and Jerry Lynn Mackey on Corner Brook this weekend. Good for all involved. Hopefully everyone has a blast. All right, you've heard me talk about baseball a lot in the recent past. Last one, Uh, maybe not. Today, in 1984, was the first World Championship Baseball Series. It was actually held at the Polo Grounds, the legendary Polo Grounds in New York City. The Providence Grays beat the New York Mets 12 to 2 in six innings for a three game sweep. Guess why they abandoned the game after six innings? Not simply because it was a runaway score of 12 2, it was too cold. Too cold, but the Providence Grays win the first World Championship Baseball Series. And I knew about this, uh, but it slipped my mind. The camp for Canada's para men's hockey team uh, kicked off in Paradise a couple of days ago. So this is a great opportunity for Team Canada to come back. Now remember, Paradise has actually hosted some international games in sledge hockey. So they're back. There's a bunch of things that you can indeed get involved yourself. So, notably, of course, we've got the assistant captain, one of our standouts, Liam Hickey, is there. Another player, Gavin Bags, and the equipment manager, A.J. Murley, are all from this province. But here's some opportunities for you to go out and see what is super-fast hockey. The inter-squad red versus white games tomorrow from 9.30 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. Thursday from 1.30 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. And here's an opportunity for the general public to go out Get in the sled and see what it's like. The boys make it look easy, and the speed with which they play is unbelievable. But if you want to try it yourself, you can do it on Wednesday at 1.30 p.m. Hop in the sled and give it a whirl. It's all free for the general public, so get out and enjoy para-hockey in paradise. At the exact same time, and this conversation happens between men and women's teams representing the country in various disciplines, various sports. So while we really support and enjoy watching the men's para-hockey team, talk about the gap of funding between the men's team and the women's team. And they're speaking out about it, and fair enough. So, Hockey Canada, of course, embroiled in scandal at this moment in time. But here's the level of, or the lack of support, or maybe it can be characterized as the disrespect for Canada's women's team and the para-hockey team. So in 2018, Hockey Canada had some jerseys for what they called their stand-up women's team, and they gave the used jerseys to the power team. It happened in 2014 as well. So that's the level of support they get, used jerseys. Not very much. They fundraise themselves to go to the various tournaments they participate in. And here's a, you know, some of the breakdown about how the different uh, – Leagues in hockey, the ages and the men and the women and the different divisions get supported. So Hockey Canada back in 2021 spent $38 million over the last four years in the men and women's stand-up national teams. $4.2 million goes to the high-performance para-hockey teams. And Hockey Canada won't even tell people how much of that $4.2 million went to the women. But you can't imagine it's very much when they're getting used jerseys. But anyway, not to take away from the fact that the men are in paradise. Please do go out and give it a whirl if you have the time. I've done it. It's really not that easy, but it's a lot of fun. So maybe you're interested. In that, I want to say good morning, congratulations to Team Tipple. Are you familiar with Team Tipple in the curling ranks? They're set to represent the province at the 2023 Canada Games. And over the weekend, they won their first Bond Spiel of the year. It was the Lakeshore Junior Cash Spiel in Lower Sackville. So, the Tipple boys, now, I've got all the names, sir, I want to make sure I get all the members of the team in. Of course, you got the Tipple brothers, Parker and Spencer, Jack Kinsler and Isaac Manuel, and their coaches, Andrew Manuel. So, not only did they win that particular spiel, but the Tipple boys, they come by their love and their skill in curling, as they call it, honestly. Their mother, Natasha, is Brad Guju's sister. So you can only imagine the excitement as they grow up through the ranks of junior curling, all the while getting to watch Olympic gold medalists, world champion, four-time briar champion, their uncle Brad do his thing on the ice with his team. So pretty cool. Pretty cool. And oh yeah, good morning to the folks at Munns Med School who participate in the Hills for Humanity. Get a load of this. They've been doing this all month. Every day. They run or hike Signal Hill, from the Battery Cafe right up to uh, Cabot Tower. So it's a pretty good haul for anyone who's ever done it, but to do it every single day, which I suppose would be a good idea for me to tackle with the front porch I'm sporting. But they do it to raise funds. And the uh, the organization this year that will be the recipient of the funds raised, and they're trying to raise $5,000, is going to go to Thrive. And we know the incredible good work that goes on, on Thrive, at Thrive. They're really filling the gaps in social services, focusing in on some of the real key things in this world education, income, housing, and food security. So good on the MUN med students for taking it up, up the hill. And this is good news too for the folks in Lab West, once again in the recreation front. So there's been an arrangement arrived at by the leadership in Labrador City and Wabush to reopen the Mike Adam Recreation Complex, it's been closed since January. There was always a squabble about the funding model, so now they've struck this particular deal between Lab City Mayor Belinda Adams and Wabush Mayor Ron Barron. The agreement only lasts until the 1st of June. They're working towards a permanent arrangement to see the funding at the level it need be and the cooperation between the two towns. The thought has long been that Lab City was used in this particular issue to force an amalgamation vote. But regardless, for the folks who enjoy going to the Mike Adam rec complex, and of course, Mike Adam was a member of Brad Gougeau's gold medal team, right, isn't that right? I think so, yeah, that's right. Good morning, Mike, Mike's a good kid. So that's good news to see them getting back on track, and just an interesting one to break up the issues of the day. I don't know why I look around at some of these things in the mornings, but every now and then I check in what's happening in the art world, of all things. Maybe it's just to distract myself from some of the other more traumatic stories we deal with. Born today in 1881, Spanish painter and sculptor Pablo Picasso. Of course, people will be familiar with you. Close your eyes and look into your mind's eye to see his surrealistic cubist work. So... He's one of his mentors, and fellow artists, Henry Matisse. He was driven to explore alternative styles of painting by Matisse and of course came up with this rivalry between the two leaders in modern art. But just think about the money in the art world. It's almost disgraceful. Five pieces of Picasso's work have sold for over $100 million in auction. Over $100 million. The most expensive was a piece called Women of Algiers. It auctioned off there a few years ago at $179.4 million. One piece of art. Yes, now. And congratulations to all involved with the We Stand On Guard Again benefit concert. Of course, Fiona Relief. It's, it's October 30th at Mary Brown Centre. And thankfully, the federal government extended their matching deadline for donations coming in for Fiona Relief. They're hoping to raise some $500,000 at the concert. Johnny Harris is going to be the host, headlined by Shani Ganach and Bud Davich. But there's a huge lineup of some of the very best the province has to offer. So congratulations to all of those involved. And hopefully you can get down and enjoy it yourself. Okay, back into the issues. People worry about pulling into the parking lot of the grocery store or walking to the store or the bus to the grocery store for the inevitable sticker shock that you get at the till. It's very real. You know, I wasn't always really looking too hard at it because if I was buying just for one meal, I always had a vague idea about how much it would cost. And those prices, of course, have skyrocketed. Inflation easing a little bit in the country, albeit still at a whopping big number of 6.9% but the fastest price increases in 40 years inside the shop food inflation at over 11%. People ask a variety of questions including grocery chains taking advantage of what are some of the political rhetoric surrounding what the causes of inflation and the war in Ukraine and climate change and whatever the case may be. So the Competition Bureau of Canada is going to have a look at the grocery industry. They say it's not sparked by one particular allegation of price gouging or excessive pricing, but they're going to have a look. The three questions they're going to ask. To what extent are higher grocery prices a result of changing competitive dynamics? And we'll get into that one in a moment. Number two, what can we learn from steps the other countries have taken to increase competition in that sector? Three, how can governments lower barriers to entry and expansion to stimulate competition for consumers? All very, very good questions, but here's some of the tricky pieces inside the grocery industry. So, there's an outfit called the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers, represents some 6,000 independently owned and operated grocery stores right across the country. They support the probe, of course, but so does the Retail Council of Canada, and they represent the large grocery chains that we're all familiar with. But here's where it gets tricky, especially for the small independents they are at the mercy of their suppliers as are the large chains but the bulk purchase makes a much different kindle of fish for the big outfits the supply issue gets further mucky and muddy if you look at the fact that some of the suppliers are actually owned and controlled by the large grocery store change, chains. So they have an awful lot of leverage, but this is a worthwhile endeavor for what is the biggest and largest consumer watchdog in the country, the Competition Bureau, to have a look at what's happening in the grocery store and give us all a better understanding. But here's what also contributes to this. is. Sometimes it's the political rhetoric that really distracts us from understanding exactly what is going on with prices, cost of living and inflation. Of course, the big hammer will be at the Bank of Canada, and people are bracing for what could be a whopping big increase in their benchmark interest rate tomorrow. But we've got to find a way to turf the political voices aside and really get a firm grasp on exactly what's going on here. Let's say, for instance, it's a supply chain issue, and some of it absolutely is. As a modern-day first world country, with the wealth of resources that we have, is there not a way we can shore up our supply chain concerns domestically? I mean, remember at the beginning of the pandemic, it was a big issue regarding personal protective equipment. There's no reason why we should be at the mercy of other countries for those types of things. So what more can be done in the country to shore up the supply chain? Certainly something can be done. I mean, we exported an awful lot of the product. So what can we do? Where do we go? And in this province, it's a massive issue. It always has been. We only uh, produce 10% of what we consume. So I'm going to throw it out there one more time. Let's pepper the landscape with small-scale greenhouses so that we have a little bit closer attachment. A community garden in the summertime and year-round operations in a greenhouse, it'll save on transportation costs. It'll absolutely save on the price of food. So whether it be fruits and vegetables or whatever, all the way through cattle industry. So anyway, the, the politicians have really hijacked that to the point where nobody knows where to turn or what to think. Anyway, let's keep going. Tonight on the Port of Port Peninsula, in particular at the community uh, the community, the, the community centre in Sheaves Cove, they're going to be talking about the World Energy GH2 green hydrogen proposal. So no official results of some of the work they've done, whether it be door-to-door or people coming in to sign on to a petition, for instance, in opposition to the project. But the initial results look something like this. 83%, uh, 83% of residents in the area firmly oppose the project. Their concerns, of course, like many things in this world, unless unless you're living there, your concerns will be different. Some people will look at the long-term opportunities inside of green hydrogen, because we got it, right? We've got what they need. Water, wind, deep-sea ports, and an abundance of crown land. And we have to protect ourselves. We have to be very careful. So if you're living on the east coast of the province, of the island, you're probably thinking, well, it's probably a good thing, right? Jobs, get in on the bottom floor. Be part of the infancy and the growth opportunities inside of hydrogen. If you're living in the port of port Peninsula, your concerns probably are vastly different. Environmental concerns. What it means to look out over your front porch into the 164 wind turbines. So if someone belonged to these organizations, one is called the Environmental Transparency Committee, and one of their spokespeople is Marilyn Rowe from the Sheaves Sheaves Cove Service District. If anyone there would like to get out in front of what we're going to hear at the meeting tonight, you're most welcome to call the program. Okay, let's keep it going. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Let's get her going here today. Sore throat. I think it's Friday we're going to have an opportunity to speak with the seniors advocate, uh, Susan Walsh. And, of course, there are huge issues on her plate, as you all are painfully aware. She's asking for and I think I'll add the word, not on her behalf, but just think, I think this is what we should be doing, is demanding a comprehensive review of what's happening in long-term care facilities and personal care homes. It's not to say it's all bad, it's not to say it's all dire, but we need to know what's happening. A lot of this is based on the seven privacy breaches that we've heard about out in Central Health, and a couple of people are being investigated, as they should be, not only by the Regional Health Authority, but also by the RCMP. There's more to it, though, isn't there? You know, some of the numbers that I've thrown around, and we'll see what Mrs. Walsh thinks about these uh, issues when we get, a, get to speak with her on Friday. So the privacy breaches are all disgraceful enough. But we have to have a better understanding of how and why we are so way out in front of the national average on two particular items. The number of residents in long-term care that are in restraints, and the number of residents in long-term care that are being prescribed antipsychotic drugs. Here are the numbers. In restraints. The national average 6.5% of residents. In this province, it's 14.2. Restraints, is it about staffing? Is it being used as punishment? How can we be so far out n- ahead of the national average? 6.5 nationally, 14.2 here in this province in the world of antipsychotic drugs and many times the patients haven't even been prescribed these drugs the national average is 21.9 percent in this province it's 38.3 percent again the disparity is concerning and so how and why again are we so far away from the national average on those two fronts but we look forward to speak with miss walsh and see what we can figure out with this review that she's seeking and she should absolutely be getting And we see that the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador kicks off their convention today. Some 230 nurses will be there. It'd be, I don't know, I was gonna say fly on the wall. You know there's going to be a lot of stories of stress and frustration and burnout, all the things we've been hearing about. I wonder how many of these stories will also include solutions being proposed by the members, the Registered Nurses who are actually working in the profession. They're in the clinics, they're in the hospitals. Because we can point to the problems what we also need, and this is not to say that Levet Coffee and others aren't offering potential solutions, but we need to hear more of that too. Because the more solutions proposed, the more conversation can include those solutions with government who have the purse strings in their hands, have the levers to pull, because we can brow people browbeat people with problems all we like. Some innovative solutions, some creative thinking, you know, not just from nurses, but for anyone who's been involved in the system or is involved in the system or just has their own thought they'd like to add to it. But I do think, you know, some of these solutions will really be found in the 10 year transition plan and an important piece of work that is the health accord. And I really do think a focus on primary care teams and collaborative care clinics is going to be a big part of what sees us through what is absolutely a crisis for so many. All right, just a quick positive one before we get off to the break. Good morning. Oops. Good morning. Congratulations for everyone at the CBDC Canadian Business Development Corporation and Youth Ventures. Today they celebrate twenty-five years of recognizing and rewarding young entrepreneurs. So this afternoon at the Saint John's Farmers Market, between one thirty and three thirty p.m., they're going to have their twenty-fifth annual Youth Venture Awards. There's young people doing great stuff and displaying remarkable business acumen as a young person in this province. Congratulations to all the eventual winners and good work for the CBDC and Youth Ventures. All right. On Twitter. We're at VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is Openline at When we come back, let's have a great show. That only happens when you call. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two to begin the show this morning. Say good morning to the executive director at TradesNL. That's Darren King. Morning, Darren, you're on the air. Hey Patty, good morning. Welcome back to the program. So what more do we know now about opportunities for the 16 or 17 trade organizations you represent, specifically with Beta Nord?
2: Well,
3: uh, first of all, thanks for taking my call. I appreciate the, the opportunity to have a few minutes. So we're um, we're engaged, I guess, in a couple of activities with the public on that, uh, Patty. Our you know our primary objective, as I've said to you many times before, is to ensure maximum opportunities for the province, and that that means obviously direct construction jobs for our skilled trades workforce throughout the province, and then the. The many, many spin off benefits that come from that, of course, for the supply and service sector, and then, of course, filters down into the local communities. So, um, you know, we're, we're certainly very engaged in the file. Just to give you a, a quick update, uh, we've been meeting with uh, industry stakeholders, including Equinor themselves. Um, we've done a letter writing campaign to MHAs. Uh, reached out to the parties uh, for uh, an opportunity to present and meet with them, Uh, met with the Premier and several provincial ministers as well as Minister O'Regan, and we're now reaching out into communities, particularly in the Cowhead, Marystown and Bull Arm areas of the province who stand, uh, stand to, you know, to either win considerably or lose considerably depending on where the work goes. So uh, our, our purpose at this point is to just draw attention to the issue and try and engage people on the discussions that are currently ongoing. Um, but to, specifically to the work, from our perspective, you know, there's basically a number of categories of work. The first is the haul, which we can't do in the province because of the physical capacity required to, to build the vessel and to be able to put it in the water. So we understand that. Beyond that, there's the top sides, which is, you know, in layman's terms, is like the Lego blocks that go on top of the vessel, the the various c- components that make up the top sides. And then there's the actual hooking all of that together on the top sides or the uh, the mating, as we call it. And then there's the commissioning and tow-out, which is the testing of the vessel and towing it to sea. Um, our view, and we've presented this fairly strongly and clearly to the province and to others, is that other than the hall, there's nothing else that can't be done in this province if the will is there to get it done uh, by Equinor. And, and I will say, Patty, to be fair to Equinor, you know, they're, they're showing good leadership locally in Norway. They're doing a, a recent project with Johan Kasberg and we've been sharing the video on that. If you haven't seen it, by the way, I'll send it to you. But it, it's basically a, a vessel. The hall was designed outside of Norway, and the video shows the hall being towed back to Norway for local benefits for Norwegians to construct and install the top sides, the commissioning and the mating. And that's really all we're asking for is is to treat Newfoundland and Labrador the same as they treat their own in Norway. Um, So it's, um, you know, it's an ongoing discussion, but uh, there are lots of things happening behind the scenes and uh, lots of uh, discussions, I'm sure, between government and Equinor and others. We just wanted to make sure people are aware of that and that people are aware of you know, the consequences, pro and con, should we get work or not get work. I will say, by the way, before I stop and, uh, and let you jump in, that uh, our meetings with the Premier and the Minister have been very positive, and uh, we're certainly thankful so far of, of their approach to this.
1: Well, of course, there's a political victory for securing as much work as possible for the development, if and when it gets its business sanctioned. But their break-even, I think, was around 35 bucks a barrel, so it doesn't look like there is any reason why they won't proceed here. Um, a couple of things and I mean you've been on the government side when some of these conversations have happened I mean like for instance Exxon Mobil paid us a fine I'll call it uh, when they did some of their work I believe it was either in Spain or in South Korea as opposed (coughs) to do it here in this province so what size of hammer do both sides hold here because for me Equinor holds virtually all the cards, certainly three out of the four aces. So how does it work to encourage, because if it comes down to giving them a break, whether it be on royalties or subsidies or electricity or something, then we're kind of giving away something to get something which might not bring us any further ahead. So how does this negotiation look? Who holds the cards?
0: Well,
3: you know, I think both sides hold the cards, uh, for sure. Uh, Obviously, you know, the, the province is in a position where it wants a proponents to develop the oil field wants Equinor to proceed with the project because of the massive opportunities not only for what I'm advocating for but also for the royalties to the province. No question. Uh, the flip side, though, uh, to be fair, I think uh, you know Equinor wants this project to move forward as well. I mean, the debate nor Project, as far as oil projects go, has been shown to be a, a very, very positive one. Uh, and, you know, all indications we have is that Equinor probably wants this to proceed as much as we do or more. So, you know, I think both have uh, have courage to play here and it's a negotiation. You know, Equinor is going to likely, as any company, want to do as much as they can elsewhere and try and reduce their risk and save money. Uh, the province's position, uh, as I understand it, and hopefully, would be that we want as much done here as possible because mm-hmm. it's our resource and our people should benefit. So I, I think both that really hold the cards here.
1: And I know this won't be a very uh, valuable addition to the conversation, but in regards to hindsight, you're right, the capacity and the type of lay down yard required to do the hull work and build the ship is not here. It's just impossible given the current reality in this province. You wonder at the beginning of the oil industry and the opportunities being a coastal province like we are, access to the north and the Marine Institute and their simulators where companies all over the world are lining up to use it. Just imagine if we had to have the foresight to put that capacity in place. Not just for our own offshore field, but for the world. You know, there was an opportunity lost there and I don't know how hard anyone looked at it but can you imagine, if there wasn't even a need for a conversation to include some work in Spain, some work in Korea, some work here, some work there, when we could have really created that capacity. What an opportunity lost.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you 100%. You know, in some respects, we're still an evolving industry, uh, unfortunately. Um, you know, back when we did Hibernia would have been really the time to have the foresight to uh, start looking at that stuff. Uh, but, you know, it's never too late. Um, and the Invader Nord provides a good opportunity. Uh, as many of us have been talking about for years, the Bullarm site, Marystown Shipyard, the Hip facility mm-hmm. are great facilities. And we need more work in both. So, you know, this might present an opportunity to start over in some respects. Uh, The other piece we didn't touch on, by the way, is subsea work. Uh, And that as well provides good opportunities locally and that might provide the opportunity for longer-term work for some of our facilities that might help morph into what you just described.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, it's not only for offshore oil either. We could have been bidding on the new Coast Guard vessels and for the shipwork being done as close as Belfast and their renowned yard. There was just always something stuck out to me that there was an opportunity lost. And that, I know that's not helping the conversation, but maybe you can spur on adding capacity versus just being content with what we have. Uh, anything else you'd like to offer this morning, Darren?
3: No, look, I pr- appreciate the opportunity. I'm actually in Placentia today for a couple of uh, couple of days, sorry, for the Pl- Placentia Bay uh, Showcase, uh, yep. talking about all kinds of things besides oil and gas. So I'll probably touch back with you later in the week, early next week for uh, an update.
1: Sounds good. Appreciate your time this morning.
3: Thank you very much. All the best.
1: You too. Bye-bye. It's Darren King, Bye-bye. the ED at Trades TradesNL. Okay, let's get another one for the break for sure. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air.
4: Good morning, Patrick. How are you this morning? Not
1: too bad at all. How about you?
4: Not too bad. Uh, Patty, I was listening to your preamble there this morning about the uh, potential for um, interest rate hikes again from the Bank of Canada. Uh, You may or may not be aware I did a piece for the Telegram on Saturday. Yeah, I read it. uh, Just just for your listeners to know that uh, I I don't have a mortgage. I don't have any credit card debt or line of credit debt or any interest-bearing debt. So an interest rate hike for me benefits me. Uh, directly, okay. okay, because investments and things like that, I get a better return. However, indirectly, these interest rate hikes, of course, affect us all overall, and myself included, and I, for the life of me, I can't understand, now, again, I'm not an economist, uh, and maybe I'm just stupid, but I just don't understand how these interest rate hikes uh, affect inflation when the people that are being affected the most are those people holding mortgages, holding lines of credit, uh, credit card balances, and all those kind of things. Uh, the, the problem we have, of course, with inflation now are supply chain issues. Uh, you know, the, the price of diesel fuel has gone through the roof. So naturally, a lot of these prices are as a result of, of uh, transportation costs and why uh, the government of Canada are not, is not addressing the transportation issues uh, instead of this, this, this 1970s policy of interest rate hikes, completely, I just, don't, I just don't understand it. So maybe if there's some economist out there who could call in and talk to you and set me straight then I'd be able to sleep a lot easier because I simply do not understand
1: it. Yeah, don't we had a, we had one of the country's most noted uh, academics on inflation, a guy from the University of Calgary, Trevor Tome, on the show not so long ago, and I'm not going to pretend to understand all the ins and outs of inflation, but you did mention, I think, the two key drivers is the energy sector and transportation. Well, I guess that housing into that. Of course, yeah. there's a lots of different moving parts here, but I don't know what the government does about the price of diesel necessarily because all yeah. they really have... Is is the taxation applied to fuels that they can, you know, wiggle around with or niggle around with to see if they can reduce the cost? But for folks who maybe aren't following that closely with the story, at the beginning of the year, the Bank of Canada's key interest rate, their benchmark, was 0.25. It's now 3.25. There's the possibility for a half a point or three quarters of a point tomorrow. And I guess the, you know, the layman's term for how it impacts inflation is. If people's pressure to service their debt becomes more, then that takes some of the money out of the market chasing goods that are in high demand. It's the basics of it, I guess. It won't really have a big impact on your credit card, but it will have an impact on your line of credit, your mortgage, and any other loans that you have with a traditional lender. So that's absolutely going to be a big knock. It's the perfect storm, isn't it? You know, housing yeah. prices have come yeah. back to earth a little bit. Energy prices are soaring. Food prices are soaring. And now with the debt Canadians piled down to themselves, average... Uh, average household consumer debt in this country is in and around twenty two thousand dollars so now the pressure on repaying your loan your monthly payment is going to really take a good knock here so it's the perfect storm where the banking its easy enough to say in hindsight but had they not been so obstinate with having this very cheap almost free money for so long and of course people would be happy to throw in the fact that you know pandemic supports put a lot of money out into the market while the supply chains were interrupted so more money chasing fewer goods is absolutely a contributing factor but I don't know where that Bank of Canada number is going to go tomorrow, but I do know. I have a mortgage and a line of credit, so I'm going to feel it.
4: Yeah, I know. And, and like I said, I don't have any of that stuff. But I'm a lot older than you are, of course. But, you know, and I understand that the uh, the government can't control the price of diesel, but there's a lot of other things they can control, such as licensing and all of those things that that go along with the cost of transportation. Uh, but what upsets what me about all of this is that those other types of things that we're talking about, other than interest rates, require a lot of thought, a lot of work, a lot of things to be done to try and address the supply chain issues, which are the big problems. And we're not doing that. We're just simply saying that, oh, yeah, okay, we'll just raise interest rates. And I think I think that's wrong. I re- really don't think that just... It's not going to change me. It's not going to change most people. Yeah, sure, let's, let's address new mortgages. Let's address new lines of credit, new things like this, uh, before we address the fact of all these people that got existing debt that are now going to have to spend a lot more to surface that debt. And, yeah, that will reduce spending on their part. But will it really have that effect on inflation? I just don't know. So... I'm calling you to say that I wish there was somebody who could really explain it to me, uh, you know, in, in, in ways that I could understand how higher interest rates really address this problem, this particular problem, which was, uh, I think we can agree that was mostly COVID related, and now getting people back to work and, and uh, coupled with the higher fuel prices and things. Uh, we don't need something unique address this inflation
1: issue. Dr. Tom from the University of Calgary pretty much said, if I remember correctly, and I think I do, is that even these interest rate hikes, it takes a couple of years for them to have real impact in the inflation number and on the Canadian economy. So I think you're right in suggesting there's got to be other moves we can take, because that's the big hammer. you know, uh, it, And there's a recession looming. I mean, it looks very much like it. I haven't seen one economist of it worth their salt not uh, exp- express that worry that it is coming. And so if it is, then the interest rate hike is going to make it even more difficult for oh. people carrying yeah. consumer debt low to the levels that they are. I mean, the last number I saw is Canadians, on average, adults, are paying out about $1.79 in servicing their debt with every dollar they earn. That's unsustainable. Like, that doesn't. the math does not work. Tom, I'll see if I can get someone on who knows much more about it than I do to speak to us like we're all 18. You know, break That's it down so works. I can wrap my mind around it.
4: That's what I want exactly, and I, yeah, thank you for taking my call. I really appreciate it, and I, I will look forward. Unfortunately, I didn't hear that gentleman you referred to, but I'll try and pay more attention here lately and, uh, and see if I can't hear somebody doing exactly what you say. And as a final note, they're finally paving our road here in front of my house in Cooper. right? <laughs> so that, that's a big plus. <laughs> well,
1: congratulations on the new uh, blacktop being laid down, and now hopefully you've learned your lesson by missing even a second of the show, Tom.
4: I will Thank you.
1: Okay, buddy. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. Bye. Alright, let's get to the break. When we come back, we're going to talk about farming out in Clarenville, then the work of the seniors advocate. And Charlie wants to talk about getting his hair done. Don't go away.
5: Weekdays on VOCM. It's open line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number
6: one. Charles, you're on the air. Um, uh, good morning, Patty. Good morning. I went, uh, I went down and got a haircut yesterday to, to my favorite place, and I paid twenty-four ninety-five, and I got $2.50 discount, but what my, I'm mad about is uh, they put they charge $3.37 HFT onto that, uh, which should not be. Should not be any HST uh, on a hairdo? No, on haircut for senior citizens. On a senior citizen, 77 years old.
1: What were you normally paying? Let's say before the pandemic or this time last year for a haircut? Uh, About uh, about twenty-five dollars. Okay, so the price hasn't changed much, but you're most crooked about the HST being applied.
6: Yes, and it should not be. You get, a, you get a $2.50 discount, and then you get to pay $3.37 uh, on HST, which should not be for seniors.
1: Fair enough. I guess when you break down the, like, the HSTs, the harmonized sales tax, but, of course, the GSTs, are the goods and services, and haircut would be inside the services world. But yeah. maybe even if the seniors discount was matching to what the HST would, I guess that would satisfy you or no?
6: Yes, if they took it down and reduced the HST, and it should not be at all uh, on on senior citizens getting a haircut or or any or or any items, but you get to pay it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Where do you go to get your haircut? Uh, I'm not saying where. It's it's, it's a good place in town. It's a, a, a really good place in town. Sounds good. Hopefully, you get a nice one yes right on thanks charles okay thank you very
1: much you're welcome yeah, bye all best. the best bye-bye bye-bye uh let's keep going let's go to line number four krista you're on the air
7: hey patty how you
1: doing doing okay how you doing
7: um pretty good um i'm calling to um i guess just give a little public service announcement to the residents of clarenville um our uh, municipal council will be um they have their municipal town plan up for um public consultation for 30 days and it's an extensive document, of course, but there was one section that just really stuck out to me and I just wanted to share it with the uh, residents of Um The town of Clarnville is going to only be permitting us to grow root vegetables. That's
8: it.
1: Yeah, someone actually, it's uh, interesting that you called because uh, a gentleman earlier sent me a tweet with the connected Facebook, the back, uh, Backyard Farming and Homesteading NL Facebook page. So yeah. I'm looking right at it, but go ahead, let's tell the folks in Clarenville what they can expect.
7: Um, so yeah, you're only going to be allowed to have root crops. So like I grow um, on my own property. I have eight raised beds, I have an in-ground plantation and I have a greenhouse. I have an extensive operation. Um, I won't be allowed to have a greenhouse anymore. I will not be allowed to have tomato plants, pepper plants, any of my greens. Spinach, kale, um, Swiss chard, cucumbers, um, p- pumpkins. We had the biggest pumpkin in Newfoundland grown in Clarenville this year. and after these um, bylaws are passed, then that's not going to be allowed to be grown anymore. Um, I have chickens and hens, and I have a rooster, and they're not going to be allowing um, roosters in the town. Um, I propose no crow collars for them to eliminate the noise so that it wouldn't be a noise issue, and they're still um, prohibiting to that. But the part that stuck out to me was the elimination of greenhouses and such a vast amount of crops that people actually grow. And considering the cost of living and the, I guess, supply chain issues and everything that's going on, I guess, in our world right now. Um, for a municipal government to be so restrictive on what people are allowed to do on their property is absolutely ridiculous.
1: It sounds ridiculous. I mean, the whole concept of backyard farming and homesteading has really grown exponentially in the last number of years. I I don't know if anyone's offered any rationale as to why a greenhouse with some tomato plants and or kale or greens or herbs or cucumbers are not allowed. Like, is there anyone telling you why they've made those proposals the way they have? Because that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, unless I'm missing something.
7: Now, um, nobody's telling why. Um, residents can email info at net to just express their um, opinion on the matter. But there will be no actual like in-person public consultation because the uh, town stated that um, due to covid they're not going to be allowing in-person public consultation. So you can't actually go and ask directly. But however, tonight at 7 p.m., the town of Tarnville is having their um, biweekly council meeting. So I guess if anybody wanted to, they could show up at the meeting, and after the meeting's over, I guess you could discuss it in person. But um, yeah, and there's another note here too. Um, you're only gonna be allowed to actually grow things in the rear part of your yard. Yeah,
1: I'm looking and right I at that. that. I was just going to ask you about that. What's the difference?
7: Um, I have no idea. Like, I actually grow on the re- um, side of my property because that gets all-day eastern exposure. My backyard is shaded. I have a lot of tree growth in my backyard. So if I had to move my whole operation into the back of my yard, I'm not going to be able to grow anything. So... Yes, go ahead. I,
1: I, I was just—I was going to ask you a couple of things. For starters, with all of the crops that you currently have in the raised beds and greenhouses, and I guess some root in the ground, how much time do you put into it? And what's, Me, your, what's the yield? What's the harvest?
7: Um, for about four months of the year, I don't really buy any produce at all. Um, I usually get um, I. Overproduce because I preserve a lot of things myself to consume throughout the year. Um, like I like jar my pickles, my beets, I make relishes, um, I do jams, um, meats, like everything, and that helps supplement, of course, our food budget throughout the year. Mm-hmm. Um, I put in the spring, it takes me about two weeks to get set up and everything in a couple hours a day, tending to it, and then the fall of the year is obviously the most amount of work because you' gotta pick everything and process everything, and the processing it is what actually takes the most amount of time for me personally.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Uh, so I understand why no crowing roosters is a, a good call I mean, for every reason people can think of, and even in the world of backyard poultry, I know there's a actual town poultry regulations that are established this year. People are allowed to have maximum of eight lame hens or quails. They've yep. got to be housed in a coop, and that's going to be referred to them as an accessory building, which comes with yep. its own complications in yep. the backyard. You know, talk about cleanliness and stuff. I get it. You don't, you don't want someone's backyard farm to become the home of every crow and rat in clarenville but nope. there's ways to do it that are absolutely sensible and they're not intrusive they don't complicate your uh, your neighbor's lives and in fact i would imagine the neighbors don't mind a jar of relish or jam at some point throughout the year so i don't really get it Dave. let's see if we can get someone from clarenville town council preferably the mayor to come on and talk about these restrictions see if we can get some answers now, that'd be great. I appreciate the time, Krista, and uh, thanks for letting us know about this, because I talk about food all the time, yep. and if we're not going to allow for, whether it be government-led initiatives, provincially or municipally, and or individuals, and you know people like Dan Rubin and others who are driving these concepts, yep. let's, let's let them do their work. If we pepper the landscape with greenhouses around the province, and establish more and more community gardens, and people are allowed to uh, backyard, farm, and homestead, we deal with some of our food insecurity issues. Not quickly, but quicker than we are currently. Yep. Good to have you on, Krista. Let's see if we can get someone from the town council on the show.
7: All right. Thanks, Patty. Thanks
1: a lot, Krista. Take care. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. You know, I'd just like to need, you know, maybe I don't, I haven't thought through exactly what some of the restrictions are put in place, but someone help me understand. What's the problem with having a greenhouse and some tomato plants? What does that do to cause a blight or a concern for the council and/or anyone living in close proximity to someone who has a greenhouse? Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the seniors' advocate. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Gavin, you're on the air.
9: Thank you, Patty. Hi. I just uh, I just wanted to call in today about the, uh, as you said before the break, there the uh, the work of the seniors' advocate, and uh, I, I have some experiences. I think some of your listeners know. Uh, when it comes to uh, seniors' issues.
1: Yes, I know. I know some of the story. I, I had a funny feeling, I knew we were going, but go right ahead, Gavin
9: yes, yes, the uh, I guess there's two things that I like uh, that I think the senior advocate needs to look at. Uh, one is the, is the separation is any of the separation of couples living in long-term care, and uh, my uh, my father uh, died well three weeks ago today, actually, in uh, Our condolences, Gavin there. thank you, thank you very much. Uh, he, he He had a long battle with uh, with Parkinson's disease. And uh, uh, he he had been moved to a to a nursing home in February, and uh, my mother stayed at at the long term care personal sorry the personal care home uh, where both of them had been residing for three years, and uh, this had uh, this had uh, emotional you know kind of mental effects on. Both of them, uh, I, I believe. You know, they uh, they weren't able to see each other very, as often as uh, as, as they like only only a couple times a week, really, because of uh, even though they were only living, you know, two kilometers apart from each other. Um, but uh, and. Uh, when he died, uh, with, he basically he died on the uh, the day after their 63rd wedding anniversary, and the entire family was able to be with him except for my except for his wife, uh, which was most unfortunate. Boy, oh boy, uh, on the day it died, and uh, so 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 uh, shortly after, uh, a few days after he died, my mother has been has been in decline. She has mo- uh, mobility issues, and uh, we've been asking for uh, to, for to be assessed and to be moved in with my father. Um, but but uh, but she had a series of falls a few days after he died, and uh, and she's uh, and she was admitted exactly ten days ago ten days ago to the health sciences center, the emergency room, and she's been there ever since. Uh, the reason being is that uh, she, the personal care home doesn 't have the resources to take her back, and uh, and there's uh, uh, and there are no spaces available uh, only least staffing available to for there are spaces available if, in long, uh, for for level three in a uh, nursing home care, but there aren 't the staff for it so uh, so so she uh, is uh, is basically beds, uh a bed blocker over in the emergency department. And she's not the only one. And, and apparently, uh, in speaking with staff, the, uh, many seniors uh, uh, seniors can end up waiting three, four weeks, even more, um, basically bedridden, until a uh, until a spot opens up somewhere in the system.
1: It's an all-too-common story, and at some point, if you are medically able to be discharged, but you don't have a spot, then comes a daily fee. I don't know if that's been applied to you and your mother at this point, but that's also something that happens in hospitals around the province as well, which does, just doesn't make any sense.
9: Yes, it's, uh, and it's you know, and, 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 uh, there is the, there is that cost, of course, and, uh, and the cost of the system, and it's, uh, and, uh, and, and, the, uh, and the and the physical toll that it places on those uh, who are uh, the mental toll that places on on people who are in that position. You know, my mm-hmm. my mother is uh, basically stares at a, at a series of walls for two walls for twenty four hours a day, uh, and uh, except for the times when when myself or or my family is able to, well, my sister and, and her and her spouses are able to come down and, and visit her. So it's. Uh, it, it, and unfortunately, government has known about this for a long time. And uh, I collected 2,500 signatures uh, uh, on a petition that was presented by, on two occasions, uh, by uh, by MHA uh, Jim Din. And uh, I, was, uh, I happened to be in the uh, in the House of Assembly for the first uh, for the first one. I guess that was in June. And. Uh, and what struck me was that, I guess I shouldn't be too surprised, but the, uh, was the collective yawn that was in the House of Assembly when, these, uh, when this petition was, was presented. You know, it was, it was it, I, I got to say, it made me really angry to see the reaction or non-reaction of our elected representatives, particularly the Liberals. It was, it was awful. We had the health minister at the time, uh, John Efford, I, I saw him. I, I, I saw him chatting to one of his uh, cabinet mates. You know, while Jim Din was busy presenting the the petition, he, he didn't care. Uh,
1: and not to correct you, but I, I think you were referring to uh, Minister Haggy at that point, right? Oh, sorry. No. Yeah, no, I just want to make sure we... Uh, you yeah. are right. But uh, how can that possibly be with? when we're talking about stories that are just so traumatic and emotional for the family, and you wouldn't be alone. There'd be People listening to this program this morning that are thinking to themselves, it's the exact same predicament we find ourselves in or we found ourselves in. It is no opportunity for chit-chat or idle minds or anything but attention. And, you know, maybe just a little obvious compassion being shown quietly mm-hmm. as these things are being presented in the House of Assembly. It's important, and everybody yeah. deserves better.
9: Yes, they do. And, uh, I, and I wrote another letter, by the way, uh, a month or so ago to to, to Tom Osborne, the, uh, the health minister now. And uh, I've yet to uh, ask him that my parents be reunited and again. And uh, I get to receive a reply. So there you go.
1: Gavin, uh, once again, uh, our condolences, and hopefully your mother is able to find much more dignified, safe, and healthy setting in a yep. care home as soon as possible. Uh, we appreciate you making time for the program this morning.
9: You're welcome, and uh, this is something that we all want for ourselves and for our families. Absolutely. Thank you, Gavin. Thank you very much for your for your time, Patty. Take care. Bye bye. Okay. Bye. You
1: know. I, some of these things that go on, like the separation of like I've seen stories where husband and wife have been together 60 years, and now all of a sudden separate because they require different levels of care. There's got to be things we can do, and you know, then there's the concept if you're in a hospital bed and the, you're able to be medically discharged but don't have a bed in a care home or long-term care facility or acute care facility to go to, I think it's $17 a day. It's no fault of yours you know, you were well enough to be discharged, they don't have a place to put you. Well, how can that be the way it is? So these are things that I suppose, or not suppose, that we will indeed discuss with the problems of senior Seniors Advocate, on top of whether it be privacy breaches and restraints and antipsychotic drugs. But if you'd like to add to that concern, because of course, There'll be widespread concern about uh, the cost of living and home heating fuels in particular. Here we are just on the verge of the colder winter months. So those are all things we can indeed, and we'll speak with Miss Walsh about on Friday morning. Uh, quick check-in with Mr. Williams. How are we doing on the telephone this morning, David? Okay, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, your turn.
5: Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back. Uh, let's go to line number one. Tom, you're on the air.
0: Good
10: morning, Patty. morning to you. I want to throw out a couple of bouquets, starting. To the residents of Newfoundland who welcome all the newcomers, it does make a big difference, and you hear them talk about it um, whenever you talk to someone from Ukraine or even someone who's moved back from here or, or even Canadians who've moved here, how welcoming and positive a place it is. So let's let's double down on that because obviously... Uh, immigration wherever it comes from is part of our future success.
1: Absolutely. I saw a good story this morning uh, actually on our website about, you know, DF Barnes and five Ukrainian welders and their thirst to learn the language as quick as possible and their quality work that they're producing and, you know, we've got to add in that kind of stuff to the immigration woe stories that we hear all the time.
10: That's right. And, and you know, part of the increased revenue is probably from uh, higher paid uh, people moving here and working remotely and they're paying their income taxes here so and, and spending their money here and paying hst and all that stuff so that that's all good not only the not only the immigrants who come from places like ukraine but but you know you got people moving here from ontario who probably bring in a pretty good dollar and now they're they're paying taxes in newfoundland so that's, that's great
1: year over year uh, five thousand two hundred and something people came to the province
10: and you got to give credit i mean you know not a lot of us want to give a lot of credit to politicians, but, but obviously the government has uh, they really leaned in in that area, and it, and it's it's paying dividends. So so good on them for that. Um, also, the future fund. You know, we can talk about how crazy it is to create a future fund when we're still borrowing money. Uh, it's kind of like having your credit cards maxed out uh, while you uh, you know you put money into the bank to into a savings account. However, it, I believe it does start to draw a line between having some connection to money and thinking about our future so I, I want to give them I want to give them credit for
1: that I'm still a little bit uh, confused by the future fund and the the number one confusion, I think, for many is that, yes, there's a turnaround in the deficit, and yes, there's like a billion-dollar drop in the debt, but still, borrowing is going to be real, some $1.8 billion, all the while setting aside hundred and five million billion from oil royalties and $50, 50 million one-time contribution from the provincial government. I know there was an increase in personal and corporate taxes and for oil revenues, just based on the production numbers and the price per barrel, but... Your question is a good one, and my, my second uh, thoughts on the future fund is I really need to know what extraordinary circumstances means for withdrawal from that fund. I also would really like to know about selling off government assets to the uh, excessive value of $5 million and that money going into the fund, so that better mean that we get to hear debate on the floor of the House Assembly about selling off government assets. That's the one that sticks out to me all the time, but maybe I'm just hooked on the Rothschild report. I can't get over it.
10: <laughs> yeah, I you know... There's days I feel like there's a master plan, and there's days I feel like it's what are we going to do this morning, like when you just announced five hundred dollars, throw it out to everybody, you know, but just to remind everybody, we are increasing our spending by five hundred million dollars this year, and we are most likely, as you alluded to earlier, going into a recession, and as we increase spending, that gets baked into it's very difficult to reduce what we're paying our employees or reduce what we're spending on fuel or all that kind of stuff. Uh, so, you know, we need to not be afraid to have these difficult conversations. But if we're going to keep increasing spending as things turn around, because right now it's a boom, you know, we're, we're, we're in this sweet spot this year. So, you know, call on the government to be courageous because it's really easy to give people money. It's really hard to take it away. Yep. Uh, I, I do want to I don't want to have a huge debate on this, but I do want to throw this out that the legal community, specifically the ones that focus on class action lawsuits, A lot of times, you know, I think about, you know, they're taking 30% usually, maybe more, maybe a little bit less, but that's a lot of money. And a lot of that, it seems like it's like the governments are like bank accounts that they just draw down from, you know, you look at the RCMP, there's just one class action lawsuit after another, like billions of dollars. There's, There's two or three right now in the works and the government settles them. And a lot of times the offenders, the people who, even though we can talk about it being endemic or being part of the the uh you know the culture or whatever else, the people who retire, like you've got the RNC uh, lawsuit now that Lynn Moore launched, these people retire, they have good pensions, they own houses, they have assets, investments, and the government settles it, and the lawyers do not go after the offenders because it's easy. I understand why it's hard to go after the offenders, but in a civil lawsuit, I would look these lawyers in the face including Miss Moore, and say, you know what, go after the offenders too. It's really to go after taxpayers because the government isn't some magic entity. It's, they're going after you. They're going after me. They're going after the listeners of the province. Don't profit maximize. If you're going to do a class action lawsuit, name all the parties. That's what that's what people do when they sue a business. They'll name every possible the insurance company. They'll name the business. They'll name the the directors of the companies.
1: Yeah, because all those people would have a fiduciary duty in that case, as opposed to a civil action where the employer, because the thought, as, as offered by Ms. Moore, is that the government should have known, or, well, maybe they did know, or they should have known. So that's how that suit is working. And how do you go after an individual in a civil matter with something that hasn't been tested in a criminal court, for instance?
10: I mean, it's difficult, but at the very least, go after them. I mean, it's real easy because it does two things. A, it gives the lawyers an easy pass. gives the government an easy pass because they don't have to face – they don't have to have any real acknowledgement of the individuals that have done it and, and their managers and, and the, whole, the whole loop. But you're talking about a lot of cases, senior officials, or even in the case of the breast cancer uh, challenge. Um, you know, you're talking about medical professionals who also have a, a, a legal responsibility to their patients. I just think it makes it all really, really easy. And at the end of the day, it's like, it's like a cash machine. And, and you know, look at you know, I mean, it's different with the Mount Cashel issue, but at the end of the day, the lawyers, although they've worked very, very hard on it for their for their for their clients, you know, 30 percent of 50 million dollars is a lot of churches and a lot of schools that they're going to withdraw from us, the taxpayer, or in the case of the church, um, the you know the, the different parishioners who and, and the different uh, congregations. I mean, I just want to throw it out there. The main th- thing I want to talk about is the learning loss. Uh, the United States just did their national assessment of educational progress, and um, and basically they look at the fourth and eighth grades, and they have determined that uh, that they've got a, they've had a major learning loss since 2019. The last time they did did the test, which which goes without saying, um, but 38 percent and math scores plummeted, and 38 percent of the grade eights were deemed below basic. Um, and that obviously has has a knock on effect to to their society and their economy, and I I would like to make the the argument. I mean, we we closed our schools more than they did. You know, there was a a lot going back and forth and back and forth, but, but for us, you know, what is our learning loss? And this leads to public exams or standardized testing, which have kind of fallen away and doesn't seem to be much talk of bringing it back. There's a lot of people supportive of not having it, obviously. But I mean, I just feel like you know, where's that conversation and what does that mean if, if we've got a way, waves, ways of less educated, less um, prepared to take on, and then we connect the dots to the professionals. You know, obviously, if you're not doing well in school, it is very difficult to become a professional. There's so many hurdles that are put in your place, right from just getting into getting grades good enough to get into university, and then being able to go through the first couple of years of any program, which are usually very, very difficult as you learn to be able to absorb large amounts of information.
1: Well, getting into university is one thing, but I just from where I sit and the thought I've given to it, I'm as concerned with moving, for instance, from junior high to high school because the snowball of learning loss becomes a compound problem as opposed to I wasn't quite prepared as a grade 12 grad. The university is going to try to understand where I am and teach me where I am and adjust curriculum for that reason. But if I had a hard time getting from grade 9 to grade 10, and grade 10 was the beginning of the pandemic, that snowball of learning loss, that's where the big devastation uh, long-term can be. There was a, a symposium in this province about high school grads. I haven't heard one people, I can't get one iota of information about what they learned. In Canada, there's been lots of research done here, not in this province that we've been you know, privy to, but there's this math group, it's called Math Guru in Toronto, I only know about it because one of my buddies has uh, enrolled his child, his son, in this program. The owner of that organization says they've seen a 30% spike in tutor uh, tutelage for math students. Then I read about a professor at Western University, I think it's Prachi Sarvasteva or something like that, and she is dumbfounded as to why we're not doing more. And the number one thing we can do is to adjust the curriculum. It's h- going to be hard because every individual will be felt learning loss differently, so to tailor up a program for every single student is virtually impossible but what we can do is adjust the curriculum to hit the masses to do the best we can for the most people we can whether it be from grade 7 to 8 9 to 10 whatever grade level people want to look at but i'm not so sure we've done it and how that is i have no earthly idea but i have been trying to get some info about that high school symposium regarding learning loss can't find a darn thing
10: well i kind of feel like we're stuck because we're all worried about The mental health of our students, for obvious reasons, they've gone through a tough couple years, and there's, you know, everybody's mental health at all levels has declined, and it's so important. However, we need to somehow magically insert pressure is not the right word, but, but like a societal expectation on all of us that we'll all lean in and we'll all try harder, including the students, to, because, you know, it gets worse every year. Every nurse that retires, if there is not a nurse coming in to the system, you know, this further exacerbates, you know, and it's like, I asked myself, you know, have, have we learned anything, uh, you know, for post-tropical storm Fiona, um, for the schools were closed for seven days. Now, did, was there any, was there any talk or, or, about somehow injecting learning there. I mean, it seems like – I mean, I've got so many students work for me, and it seems like every week is a four-day week. And I just, I just don't know if it's even really that much of a priority as a society, you know, amongst amongst all of us collectively, that we excel, that we push ourselves. And I listen to Darren King, and, and you know, all I hear is more and more, you know, money, 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 let's let's do whatever we do. But, but that all takes work, and it all takes – Effort and it and it and it, and it takes it takes expectation and I, I don't know if we really have a high enough bar for ourselves collectively and 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 I don't know how we inject that into our province. It's just I spend so much time thinking about it. But I just don't know what the solutions are. It's like unless everybody wakes up tomorrow and says, "Okay, we're going to be like Japan. We're going to be like South Korea." Like I don't know how we inject that into a culture that it's all about quality of life and don't get stressed And I What
1: I heard from King wasn't give me more money it was make more job opportunities available
10: yeah, but, but nobody wants to talk about the reason that, that big companies don't want to build stuff here is because everything always goes over budget and over time, and we want to rotate different employees through. So everybody, all the apprentices, it's great the apprentices get an opportunity, but if every day there's half the employees or a quarter of the employees or 10% of the employees are just learning the job for the first time, it all has a cost.
1: And and some of it, some, but I, I think that oversimplifies it a little bit. I mean, some of it, for instance, if uh, Equinor decides to do some work in Stavanger, it's because they have a laydown yard. If ExxonMobil chooses to do some business in South Korea, it's because they've got a 50 your, uh, arrangement with that particular outfit that does some of those some of that work for them so it's not just about overtime over budget in fact I think the top size work that was done here regarding Hebron was on time on budget wasn't it down in Marystown yeah and in bouerm
10: yeah I, I'm just- I think so I, I, all I know, it just seems like the Bull Arm and Musgrave Falls are the two mega-projects, like the bookends, like, you know, down for the Hibernia project and Musgrave Falls, it seems like that's the way we roll, and that's internationally known. I mean, you know, we might have a few small victories, we don't talk about them probably enough, but, you know, that culture of, you know, maximizing local benefits sounds great in theory as long as we're efficient. And the reason we maximize local benefits is because we hit it out of the park and everybody wins. But it seems like that the taxpayers who get less royalties because we make these deals, and then because the projects go over or because most Falls costs twice as much, we're the ones who end up paying because we don't get the royalties, we end up paying higher electrical bills. And and in the middle of all that are these really powerful special interest groups who manipulate the system to maximize their rents, to maximize their incomes. And in the meanwhile, the province slowly, slowly sinks. When we have so much potential, and and uh, anyway, listen, I'll leave it there, Patty. Thank you. Everyone, stay safe. Take Appreciate it. the time. Thanks, Tom. Bye-bye.
1: Bye. All right, it is indeed time for the break. Uh, what are we at, Dave? What are we talking about next? Uh, we'll find out. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Wayne, you're on the air. Good day, Patty. How you doing? Doing okay. How you doing? Number one. Good man. Patty.
2: Uh, about two or three weeks ago, you and I talked about. Uh, briefly about the 500 hectares of land that was made available for potato production? Yeah. You were going to follow up to see what happened to it because I was not successful in my work.
1: So did you get any answers or did you do any with it? I did. What I was told is the proponent withdrew, which I can't find the proponent to confirm it. There were two proponents, if my memory serves me correctly. Yeah, well, okay. I think there was a seventy-five twenty-five 25 arrangement. That's what I've been told anyway, And It's hard to confirm when yeah. you can't get the other side of the story from, in this case, the proponents of the farm. So I guess the summary answer is I'm not really sure.
2: I think at the end of the day, though, there's no new potato production.
1: There I think that's go. safe to say.
2: Well, so we've got 500 hectares of land cleared and uh, prepped for seeding and nothing in it, only all the new olive bushes growing up.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I've just been having a hard time getting much in the way detail. Like, it was years ago I thought it made all the sense in the world. Government was talking big game about doubling food production. Then there was the 64,000, 65,000 hectares of land that was going to be put forward for agricultural purposes. It took forever to clear the land. It took forever for uh, business proposals to be evaluated and approved and money to capital to be raised to get them off the ground. So it looks like we're moving at a snail's pace with what I thought was actually going to be forceful action taken by government especially if you're talking about doubling food production that's not a flip a switch and it's done overnight but it seems to be moving at a snail's pace even though some of the programs seem to be quite successful like with the uh, the starter plant program I can't remember exactly what it's called Uh, that plant program has grown huge I mean it's about quadruple what it once was just a few years ago but where's the extra production I haven't heard an update that we've moved beyond 10% so where are we that's a good question that you pose Wayne I don't know
2: no, but I, somebody ought to feel some obligation to the public to uh, give us the truth about this stuff, instead of sticking around for the photo op and then disappearing into the universe. You
4: know,
2: we got money and we got we got good prime uh, land up here for for planting, ready for planting, and. Uh, All of a sudden, we don't have a proponent. The public was not made aware of the status of the project. Nothing. We're in an information vacuum. It's not good enough, really, Patty. And this kind of bullshit, pardon my French here, has been going on for years with agriculture. All kinds of land has been cleared and ready for production, and nothing happens.
1: Yeah, so would that be on government or would that be on people willing to get into an industry that is not easy work, it's not easy to raise money, it's not easy to compete with the massive suppliers and the mega farms, or I suppose it's a combination of the two. What do you think?
2: Potatoes are a dollar a pound supermarket now, Patty. Oh, I know. I shop. Unknown. Unknown before. A dollar a pound. If you can't Potatoes in Newfoundland at a buck a pound, I don't know, you might as well... Find it a different way to spend your time, but it's, you know the, the truth. Government is involved in this. It's it's uh, crown land, you know. That's been cleared by the government, made available for private use, and all of a sudden, it just the whole idea just vaporizes. It just uh, and and the public, nobody seems to have an obligation to update the public on exactly what's happened. Mm-hmm. And, Fair enough, uh, you know, and uh, not good enough anyway. Patty, we won't believe it. One other thing, I do set your memory here. About three weeks ago, a lady called in, and she—Ukrainian descent, I believe— and she was uh, canvassing people for donations of men's winter underwear to send to Ukraine for the soldiers. And stupidly at the time, I didn't make note of the contact information, and now I have the underwear in hand and went out and brought some. And uh, I, can't, uh, I can't make contact with the person. I don't know her name or her phone number. So somewhere in your records, there, I hope.
1: Do you remember that conversation? I do. Dave actually mentioned it to me before we uh, took your call. He's trying to find the information for you.
2: Okay. Otherwise, if the lady is listening, maybe she can call in again to these Dave's uh, search there yep. and uh, we can get it done more quickly. Anyway, I appreciate that.
1: Anytime, yeah. We'll see, if, and maybe she is listening. And we would welcome a call with an update, and so to provide the contact information once again, because you're probably not alone, Wayne. But uh, meanwhile, Dave will have a look around, see if we can find her for you. Yeah. Okay. Appreciate it, Patty. Okay, man. All the best. Have a good one. You too, Wayne. Bye bye. Uh, just an update. Now, yesterday there was a, a barrage of. Advertisements or commercials uh, on behalf of the Conservative Party of Canada leader, Pierre Poliev, regarding his motion on the floor of the House of Commons about an exemption for home heating fuels. And if someone who listens to this program, you know that I've been talking about the need to exempt home heating fuels. But interestingly, in the House of Commons yesterday, when it made its way to the floor and to the vote, there was one Liberal who voted in favour of Poliev's motion, Liberal Ken McDonald elected in and serving the folks of the federal riding of Avalon. Everybody else voted against Mr. Poliev's motion. Now, the provincial government has also said quite loudly that they are not in favor of a uh, carbon tax being applied to a home heating fuel at this moment in time. We do indeed, people will make the point that the carbon tax program in this province is provincial. It was something we negotiated, a bilateral agreement with the federal government to simply put the price on fuels but with an exemption on home heating fuels. If the province does not get that exemption again, we will have the federal backstop kick in, and there will be a carbon tax on the home heating fuels. And I do think that's the one place where the gentleman is right, is we can adjust our behavior behind the wheel. Not everybody, because people travel for work, all kinds of different extenuating circumstances. But heating your home is not a behavioral issue. It's being warm or cold. And the winters can be... Pretty cold around here. So, the quest for the province to be able to secure some sort of exemption on carbon tax and home eating fuels is a big one, no doubt about it. But Mr. McDonald actually voted in favor. Now, remember when Scott Sims did that uh, a number of years ago? And this was about the summer jobs attestation, uh, about being aligned with liberal government policy before you got summer job grant money. He voted against the government of the day at the, uh, on that particular issue. And what became of that? his political career it was it was the beginning and the end of Scott Simms political career he at that point was the chair of the uh, committee surrounding fisheries and oceans he lost that right away and then of course when it came time for a general election do you think the federal party poured any support into Mr. Simms no what was the outcome The the conservative party won the seat Clifford Small. So these things all go together. Whether or not this indicates Mr. McDonald is close to retiring or he just voted with his conscience, I don't know. But that's just the fact of the matter as recorded yesterday in Ottawa. Let's take a break. When we come back, Joshua is there to talk about toxins. In what?
5: We'll find out. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM
0: lunch break.
5: Welcome
1: back to the show. Let's go line number three. Joshua, you're on the air.
5: Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Yeah, so it's nice to be on the show. Uh, This is actually, I guess, prompted by your sort of recent news article there a few days ago um, about, like, the hair care products that were recalled, like probably more than a million. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, well, that's kind of disheartening. And especially if you're a recipient of these products, you know, nobody wants to have that told to them and then they're starting to worry, oh my God, how much exposure did I actually have? And it reminded me of a few experiences that I've had, um, the past number of years, really, um, I, I recall there were probably at least 10 years ago, actually, I uh, it was my first car, an old 99 Sunfire, and I went on a particular website, and I purchased a few auto products, and it came in a few weeks later, and I was really excited to open the box, and one of the products that I ordered was like a steering wheel cover, and it was like a camouflage design, and that was like the bee's knees, especially as a young person at the time, but... I actually remember reading on the packaging of this steering wheel cover of all things that and it was pretty well saying like word-for-word warning this product contains lead which is known to the state of California to cause cancer and other reproductive harm yeah and I said to myself oh my god seriously and I had that moment or so of like You know, will I keep it after all? I really like it. That's probably not a big deal. But then I thought, you know what? If I put this steering wheel cover on my steering wheel, I'm going to spend the next several months or years always having that concern in the back of my mind. And so I disappointingly, you know, put it back in the package and sent it off and got a refund. But I was just thinking like, oh my golly, like a steering wheel cover of all things? Why would there even be something like lead in that? And you're constantly, you know, especially if you drive for a living or if you're always on the go just, your hands are probably going to be on that for one or two or more hours a day
1: yes and, and then just scratching you your like, face yeah. and rubbing your eyes <laughs> all of the course. rest of it yeah
5: and and going and, and if you're a family person you know uh, playing with your kids it's like so that was quite disheartening and, and it kind of begs the question to me now and at the time like surely and, and I'm not saying that everyone needs to like throw out their steering wheel cover that's not what this is about but I was just kind of thinking like surely there's a way to manufacture things like this without the use of lead of all things and anyway there was um, another couple of products that I actually um, wanted to mention specifically not not to you know not to um, give any particular company a bad name I'm not going to specify you know that type of thing but I, I hooked up my washer a couple of months ago patty and I noticed that the hoses that I bought once again, I read the label, and it said something about the use of lead or, or some sort of, I guess, heavy metal or some sort of toxin. And it warned, like, you know, be extremely careful handling these hoses. Wash your hands afterwards. Dispose of all packaging properly. Um, so then I thought to myself, oh, my God, like, I hope that my little boy, you know, doesn't find himself behind the dryer or the washer just playing around and, and handles these, these hoses. And... um and one more product I'll mention right now, Patty. Again, this was like a month ago. Um, I bought an extension cord, an extension cord of all things, and it was like $5. I, again, I'm not going to say where I bought it, but it was, we'll say, at a semi-discount store, and that's fine. I'll certainly go there again, but when I bought this cord and I, I actually used it to charge my phone, um, you know, one time. And then I actually ended up reading the little sticky, the little label on this cord. And once again, it's like it said it said on this cord that, like, I, I'm not sure – I threw it out after. I'm not sure if it said lead, but it did say that that cord contained a known carcinogen and it should be handled with extreme care. Don't let people touch it. Wash your hands afterwards. And I was saying to myself, like – Really? It's madness. Seriously?
1: Yeah. I mean, when you go, for instance, to a hardware store what have you versus the grocery store people are much more inclined to read the label with what they consume versus what they simply touch but it's worth it because as you have pointed out in several instances here you've had a product delivered to you or one that you were using that had potentially harmful substances like even in something that has any rubber on it a steering wheel cover an electrical cord of course the most common wrapping would be rubber for most you know residential uses for those types of cords inside the process of vulcanization there's all of metal oxides all kinds peroxide i think sulfur is probably the most common chemical inside that process but inside the metal oxides world is absolutely lead (laughs) it it just is so i think you're making a pretty valuable point here is don't take for granted that the steering wheel cover or the electrical cord or the hose for your uh, for your washing machine is exactly what you think it is have a read absolutely have a read Mm -hmm. and in the world of hair care products you know, and only because of that story that I even looked one step further about it. Formaldehyde and denatured uh, oils and coal tar and silicone, silicon, and all these things in your hair, your shampoo or your gel or your hairspray—it's just wild. I never gave it any thought until I read that story. You know, yeah. I long for the days where my shampoo is a beer shampoo. Give me some body on tap.
5: Yeah, of course, and um, and I'm not trying to isolate lead as the only cause. I mean. It's 2022, and apparently, especially in cleaning products and and just different things like that, there are multiple ingredients that might be either questionable or, you know, there have been, after the fact, Oh, I mean, even take asbestos, apparently, like 60 or 70 years ago, there was, like, posters and advertisements about, uh, you know, kids playing in this stuff and saying, like, this is completely safe, and yet for all a few, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 years later, it's like, wait a minute, this is this is highly highly carcinogenic, this asbestos, and this needs to be, you know, handled by hazmat suits. But yet, for all at first, they thought it was completely safe. So that's, I mean, I'm not trying to sound too doom and gloom here. I guess in conclusion, I'm just trying to encourage people and a reminder to myself to be mindful of different ingredients, not just in food, apparently, but especially if there's um, a little sticker or, you know, information, Pat, with the product, you know, maybe give that a read over, you know, most people have, I guess, have the internet, you know, that I guess all that is, is to do a little Google research, or whatever, if you have questionable um, ingredients, or, you know, that type of thing, and maybe even like, if if people want to take it a step further like of course they do have the option to call the company and either express their concerns or i don't know i suppose some of these things come down to government intervention at some point if there's and and again with that steering wheel cover example that i said i I guess california specifically has more of a rigid um criteria and and mandate for certain you know um substances, because a lot of these products go so far as to say this is known to the state of California to cause cancer. So, But they're not rigid
1: enough to ban it. Oh,
5: okay, yeah. Um, really? Like, I, I, I guess when I read things like that, I figured that in California, you wouldn't find products containing this, but what you're saying, Patty, is that they are sold in California
1: as well? Or? Well, I don't know if they sell them there. My point was that it's easy enough for the state of California to say we're aware of it, but the step mm-hmm. further to be rigid would be to say we're not allowing manufacturers inside our state borders to use lead in steering wheel covers. that That's the only point I was making. Not that, okay. you know, and the lead component might be minuscule. That presents very little risk. I don't know because I don't know the wheel yeah. nor do I know the chemical compound of that okay. product. But uh, yeah, and speaking of things like asbestos, we're still producing in Canada and Quebec. I think we're the only first world nation on the face of the earth that's continuing to produce asbestos. And here we are with public buildings. People are afraid to buy them and tear them down because of the uh, the uh, remediation required, especially when we talk about asbestos. It's such a weird world. Of
5: course, and even with uh, buying a home. Like, I think, uh, say, generally speaking, mid-'80s and newer typically don't have asbestos. But if you're buying a house that was built in the early-'80s or before you might want to actually get that tested because again around that time apparently was when they started to discontinue the use of that right so mm-hmm. all sorts of course you know i guess it's just like i said it's it's important not and like you say sometimes not to fear monger but it's just a reminder and an encouragement to to be mindful and to, to do research and uh, that type of thing and I, I know i i should let you go now patty maybe just 30 more seconds if if i have that go ahead um just i guess a different product, um, uh, I, I've noticed, and, and this is becoming more, um, what's the word, it's becoming more known, I suppose, about aluminum, especially in things like deodorant and stuff, and antiperspirant specifically, and I've actually noticed, in, if you go to the grocery store, for some reason, the men's section of deo and antiperspirant is probably like half and half, 50-50, you know, 50% is deodorant, 50% is antiperspirant, but in the women's section, I've noticed, it seems like it's 95% plus antiperspirant, all of which at least 95% of that seems to have aluminum in it. So, yeah. if, I was, if I was a woman, i I probably like, all jokes aside, might actually be inclined to shop for like a semi-feminine smelling man's deodorant because it doesn't have aluminum a lot of times. And I've heard, and it's becoming more known, that aluminum, especially on the, sin, the skin, after a while, can be a carcinogen. So, why are they still making things like this for 50% of the population that is women. You know what I'm saying?
1: I, I do. Um, and the, I don't use antiperspirate because, you know, as a man with a bit of hair in my armpit, I just find it mats up to a point where it becomes a nuisance. And maybe that's why it's more popular with women, the likelihood for less hair, possibly, for some women. So I don't get myself in any trouble here. Uh, yeah. But yeah, but I, I use deodorant. I did pick up one product one time. We were on the road playing hockey and I, I grabbed something that I'd never used before. Well, it lit my armpits on fire fire oh, so,
5: snap.
1: but uh, yeah anyway i don't th- imagine there's going to be a lot of some of the more masculine musky sense going to be a, 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 a potential option for some women but anyway it's good to have you on the show this while uh, this morning joshua good conversation thanks patty and you take
5: care and we'll talk to you
1: next you time too all the best bye-bye Peace. yeah and i don't think that's in the world of fear-mongering to read the label you never know where you're getting yourself into because i'll admit freely if i go to name a big brand canadian tire if I'm buying a product that I'm not going to ingest, I don't know if I ever read the label about what, it's, what the chemical compounds are therein. But uh, anyway, Joshua did. And that's probably going to be a few people looking at the packages a little closer when they buy something that is especially coated in rubber. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number one, let's take good morning to the opposition house leader. He's the PC member for Conception Bay South. That's Barry Patton. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air uh good morning patty how are you okay how about you I'm good, thanks.
11: Uh, Patty, I, I just wanted to call in and uh, discuss initiatives and discuss last week, of course, and it's been in the media a bit since and every day pretty well, and I know you've had in your program. You Actually, yes, I heard you talking about in your preamble as well as last week, is regarding the perceived, I guess, perceived conflict of interest with the Premier and the so-called fishing trip or what have you, and, I mean, I think first thing we need to be clear it's not about a fishing trip. It's more about the perceived real conflict of interest and the answers that the Premier has been given. When asked questions, I mean, I have mean, not accused him of anything. I've started off by asking questions. And uh, I know my first question that was followed was interrupted by the House leader, government House leader, Minister Crocker, was basically telling me we're going down this road, Barry. You know, we want to go down this road. and Which raised my, you know, I'm not new to the House, so you raise your antenna and say, okay, hang on, what, what's, what, what's going on? I'm asking a question that was reported by All Newfoundland in their story, and I'm asking a question for clarity. It's our job to do, if, as, of course, in the House Assembly. And so that I mean, instantly gave, you know, the alarm bells when I off my own mind. So anyway, through the question period and the response to the premier, I guess, is, is most telling, Patty, in the sense of it's my time, my dumb, I can do what I want in my own business. <clears throat> and respectfully, you know, he's right if he wasn't premier of the province. And we say this as an adage and I mean, we say it, he's premier for Trump 65 days a year. It's not, he's not Andrew Fury on weekends or Dr. Fury on other days. He's premier Fury 365. I, I know and that, that's a challenge. And you know what, Patty, it's a challenge sometimes for me is in the role you play in the House of Assembly to challenge the Premier and ask those questions because the party you feel that you're going down a road you don't really feel totally comfortable with. And I'll be honest and really frank with you and your listeners, that's the way I felt. But when I started asking the questions, because I felt like it was an obligation I felt I needed to ask, and the answers I got, I started thinking, I'm glad I did ask the questions because, to me, there's more to this story than what we're actually being told. And it's not a witch hunt. It's the, I mean, it's the Premier and he's in his own comms people and probably his own senior ministers, the way they've circled the wagons. And the responses and lack of responses that's kept this story alive. And I mean, I plan on going for you know, I plan on trying to get more answers on this because I think, as a Premier of the province, he owes it to the people. And, uh, you know, Patty, might I might add to that part as MHAs, we all have an obligation and responsibility. In mm-hmm. our disclosures, to, to tell the public, tell, we have to tell the chief uh, commissioner of legislative standards, right to this, right to what we have in our bank account, right to the cent, what we own our visas, what we own our homes, what we our wives make, what any monies we get, any lands we got, any investments you have, any like your, your full personal life is true out a piece of paper and is documented and is, and is in the vault out there. Apparently, the only ones can see it that's to protect you from any perceived conflicts of interest and they rule if you have any conflicts if you don't. It comes with territory and that's coming as an MHA, not as premier, not as from probably with some vast other interests that some members go in there with, but I mean they create blind trusts and what have you. This is the territory we working, this is being a public servant or you know public figure, an elected official, it comes with territory. I don't like it, I don't think any of us like it, but we live with it. So the, fa- the fact to say you're picked on and because ever since you get in you've been this or that, I think we can all say we live in fishbowl in Lufthansa politics. We all have our moments of that. I mean, I've experienced it. We all experience it. But yeah. that, all that aside, that's kind of the red earring into the situation, Patty. The problem line is, we feel there's answers and not not, questions being asked and answers not provided, and it's been incumbent on the Premier of this province to clear the air, provide receipts. If you get receipts, provide them. It's not a matter of, and clear the air and we'll move on. I asked that question to him. And I and I was dismissed once again and, and again, and he gets out, and, it's been, and since then, it's just, he avoided the media the other day. He wouldn't ask any questions. So, answer any questions. I mean, Paddy, I think it's all fear, fear game, and in his role I think it's fear for us to challenge and keep challenging this issue until we get some clarity, because I think the public deserves to know. Scrutiny becomes more and
1: more sharp the higher you are in elected office, and of course the tip of the spear here is on the 8th floor, so I get it. Um, For the purpose of conversation, so if this... If there had to be a sighting of Mr. Risley leaving the Premier's home after a Friday night dinner, would it be the same conversation? Or is there something about the fact that it was Risley's Lodge? I'm just trying to figure out exactly where people think the problem is here. Like, for instance, if he paid for it, then I don't know how far we go with this. If it was a a dinner in his home with a guy who he's known, who he considers and he says is a friend, would it be the same conversation in your opinion?
11: And, Paddy, it, it would be the same one, you know, and you're to right to your point, because I don't get hooked up on the fishing lodge piece. I think it's the judgment piece. So if he did leave the Premier's home after a Friday night dinner, I think as a Premier of the province, and as any of us, any minister or any person that had any influence or this man is, you know, he's involved, heavily involved with the Port I think this still requires a certain level of scrutiny and who you're associating with, because this, the optics is... I mean, we'll i live in optics. So to your point, I think there'd still be valid questions. So I don't think the fishing lodge... I think that's the red herring in this situation. I think and I heard I heard different people we've had discussion, many people I have and myself, the fishing lodge just is the example, that's where it happened to and it's kinda of under the cloak of secrecy. But even if it wasn't his own home, it's still a valid question because you are you're, you're having conversations with someone that's making a multi billion dollar proposal on the Port of Port Peninsula and the timelines and associating people, other people involved, there's a lot of questions, unanswered questions there. And a lot of people are asking those questions to come to me and I mean, you they're coming to you I'm sure and we hear it all other outlets as well people have serious concerns and so i don't think it really matters if it was larger if it was in his own dining room these are valid issues and deserve answers uh,
1: and again this is just my own personal opinion i think the story got more traction than it possibly would have just simply because the premier was frustrated in his reaction to the question you know bringing up charitable work and keeping his medical credentials alive you no know, practicing medicine and now this one <clears throat> when because p- it's human nature. When we see it, regardless who we're talking about, Andrew you're or anybody else, when someone asks uh, answers in an angry or frustrated fashion or gets their back up, people automatically think there's more to see. So I think that's where the story really uh, got legs is when people thought, wait now, if you're reacting like that, there must be something to it. As opposed to someone who's just frustrated, just had an outburst so I, I think that's why the story is still alive in many corners had he said oh no geez myself and my father we've been salmon fishing together for years i've been to that lodge in the past uh paid my own way and uh, you know here's the receipts i'm not sure what else you want me to say i have friends and a father and we like to salmon fish okay i think that all of a sudden the story gets a little bit tempered it doesn't go away but it certainly got more traction when he was frustrated in response
11: Absolutely, and you know, Patty, I don't disagree with a word you say, but I mean, on that note, the Premier's had better part of a week now to come out and clear the year he read the articles we all read he's listening to the radio he's probably listening to us right now so he has that opportunity to come out and clear the air so why you know why why don't he just come out and do that I mean the opportunity has been given to him many many times last week this def- defile and you're above everyone else unfortunately Patty, with that comes a sense of entitlement and that's all I feel when I hear this comment from not only from me, anytime I hear comments like that it's a sense of entitlement and that's what the problem of today's politics a lot of people are fed up with and to be honest with you I'm a politician sometimes and I get fed up with it because that's what makes us all look bad. It's the sense of I'm entitled and I don't have to answer your questions and go on and mind your own business. That's not what. That's the problem we've got in Newfoundland politics, probably right across the board. And I think it needs to stop. And I mean, he could stop this right now and come out and clear the air and provide the information we've asked and we move on. Obviously, he's not. So obviously, that draws the question: Can he? Can he clear the air? So I mean, it's incumbent upon the premier. I mean, the balls in his court. He asked me, and I think that we'll continue on on this road. Not that I think there's other things important but this is important too because you're looking at the judgment of the Premier in holding the IS office in the province and I think they're a very valid issue that uh, needs answers
1: So clarification, yes or no if the the Premier provides an invoice and how it was
11: paid, that's it for you you're done with the story? Now, I wouldn't say I'm Don Patty, but I think that would be a good start in the right direction there may be other related questions we're going to ask do I say I'm shutting down the story probably not but that will go a long ways but okay well you know but, I mean, we still need to know though even with a receipt and this is something that's a fair question too you know, what, you know what, what, who else was there and that's not clear he said that was in the public media and what was discussed I mean, the one that got away I mean the timelines is still questionable but it would help his cause a lot and I think in the public eye it would help his cause a lot as well Appreciate the time, Barry. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take care.
1: Bye-bye. As opposition house leader, the PC member for CBS, Barry Pettin, one thing that came out of this, and regardless of what person or behavior or policy or project we're talking about, it is absolutely an excellent idea for the establishment of an ethics commissioner. Why not? I mean, that layer of protection for the voters just sounds like a no-brainer to me. If I'm a politician, regardless of what party I'm representing today, I'm pushing forward with that. If I'm a a liberal cabinet minister or the premier anyone else, I'm pushing forward with that. That's a good look politically. It's a pragmatic move on behalf of the citizens of the province. So let's do that. Uh, Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, tons of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Do not go away nutrition exercise keeping the cold at bay whatever keeps you feeling great the wellness and healthy lifestyle show on your VOCM welcome back to the program well who doesn't love hearing a dark tale of our Irish Newfoundland heritage huh let's go to line number two Say so good morning to Pat Faran to talk about the hikes that are going to be happening at the O'Brien Family Farm good morning Pat you're on the air good morning Patty. how are you today couldn't
0: be better how you doing I'm doing great. It's an absolutely gorgeous morning out there. And so I hope all your listeners get a minute to get outside and soak up that beautiful sun. That'll be right. me this
1: afternoon, guaranteed.
0: Oh, wicked. Wicked. Because as you were alluding to, some scary things happen after dark. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you got to have a segue, right? So that's mine. Uh, I, I was calling to let your listeners know about the after dark haunted ghost story hike that happens at the o'brien farm Uh, i'm sure many of your listeners know the o'brien farm is a 200 year old farm in the center of the city a beautiful 31 acre property and what the, the after dark hike is a guided hike through the property and along the way you encounter these campfires that are in the woods. And that's where these really intimate and terrifying ghost stories are performed for you. And the most wonderful thing happens, you're there, you're hearing the story, you're hearing about banshees, you're hearing about fairies and about changelings. There's the crackle of the fire, and then suddenly there's silence, and then something rustles beside you in the bushes or you think you hear an owl, and you, you're alone in the woods. <laughs> it is it is a really spooky event, uh, but don't worry, it's not all terrifying. Uh, the hike concludes at the new uh, kitchen barn that the O'Brien Farm Foundation has uh, set up on their property. This gorgeous new facility, and so at the end of the hike you're treated to hot chocolate, hot apple cider, fresh gingerbread, all kinds of wonderful things. and. Uh,
1: I like it. I mean, I'm up for a good fright uh, all the time, to be honest with you. And the work that's being done at the O'Brien Family Farm with the kitchen and other things they've done to reinvigorate it is terrific. So whether it be Mark Critch's involvement, of course, you get a load of horsepower with that. And then the opportunity for people to have a look, because you're right. 31 acres, right uh, smack dab in the middle of the city. And I'm going to guess the significant majority have never set foot on it.
0: I think so, and uh even if you attended the event last year um the the property has seen some incredible upgrades mm-hmm. since last year uh so it really like there are four performers in in the in the hike, but i I think the fifth character in it is the farm itself because you're getting a guided hike. Through this really majestic property, Um, you know, we're all curious about, oh, what's what's going on up there? Well, I, I don't think I'd be invited. Well, tonight you're invited. So the show is playing Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Your listeners can find t- advanced tickets on Eventbrite. Uh, and I think I shared the link with you, but folks can also find it on Facebook. They just look for After Dark at O'Brien Farm. And there's also uh, cash sales at the door if people are, you know, looking at the weather, not sure if they're going to go in advance. Well, they can also just show up on the night and we'll try and fit them in. Uh, the groups move through. It, it's, it's really small groups, so they go every 15 minutes. I, I know a lot of people are concerned about covid and being around large groups well the groups are no bigger than 15 people they're outdoors so i you know i'm not a doctor but i'll say this is as covid safe as we can make it
1: for sure so i'm i'm guessing that it takes what so if you have four performers each each performer will take a group of 15 or however many show up on the night so how long is the entirety of the hike take
0: It's about an hour uh, from beginning to end. We start at 7 o'clock each night, and we're going until about 10. So every 15 minutes, there's a group going through. So uh, if you're coming with a group, I'd suggest getting advanced tickets. Uh, But as I said, we have uh, welcomed people in on the night as well. Who are the performers, Pat? The performers are George Robertson. Finn Shea Marie Jones and the one and only Sheila Guy Murphy. Now, <laughs> if, you, <laughs> oh, wow. if you. This is it, right? Like, she, she's a force, she's a known entity, but so often she's uh, out in the public telling us about the Tada events and Christmas, uh, Divas Do Christmas. Well, here you get to see her. In a really terrifying role, and um, they're all fantastic. But I'm, a, I'm a Sheila fan. So, uh, so
1: am I saw my. I know Sheila listens to the show sometimes, and hopefully she's listening today. And I offer this as a compliment. She's perfect for this.
0: She really is. She really is. I love Sheila. Uh, well- Thanks so much for having me on, Patty. And, uh, and I really hope that your listeners do get out to uh, enjoy that sun. I can't believe how lucky we are here in the third week of October. 14 degrees. Are you kidding me? It's just stunning out there.
1: I was sweating doing backyard work on Saturday from the sun. I believe it. Yeah, it was awesome. So for folks who want to catch After Dark at the O'Brien Family Farm, Thursday through Saturday beginning at 7 p.m., small groups. If you're bringing a group, please do indeed buy advance tickets. If you're playing the weather forecast as a determining factor, you can make arrangements at the door. Good to have you on, Pat. Good luck and break a leg.
0: Thanks so much. Take care.
1: You too. Bye-bye. Yeah, those they prove to be quite popular. The Haunted Hikes and this type of affair. I bet you they're going to have some great success with this. And, you know, some dark Irish tales. Maybe a tale about just how great we are as Irish folk at holding a grudge. (laughs) We're the best at that. (laughs) That's for bloody well sure. Brian asks an interesting question and I think a good question on uh, social media. He says, if we're going to create an ethics commissioner for Newfoundland and Labrador, the office better have some teeth. Unlike the federal ethics commissioner proven over and over that the PM and their rulings are meaningless and of course there's been I think five ethics violations flagged by the federal ethics commissioner regarding uh, the prime minister and some other members so it's an interesting point he makes what does teeth look like I guess how the office is used today would be very much in so far as informing voters that there has been an independent review of a one politician or another, one party or another, and people can use that as they consider who they'd like to vote for in the future, as opposed to any real formal sanctions. There are some, I believe, available sanctions, you know, repayment of funds, whether it be the Aga Khan trip, for instance, and others. But I don't know what Teeth looks like, but he makes a good point. Because it's one thing to have a, v- a violation flagged, it's quite another to actually do something about it. So that's an interesting point, Brian. I'm going to give it a bit more thought. Also, made the mention of the fact that uh, Liberal MP for Avalon Ken McDonald uh, voted in favour of Pierre Polyev's motion to call for an exemption to uh, carbon tax being applied to home heating fuels here. See some kind of weird and interesting and curious reactions coming to it. One goes something like this: is the carbon tax in this province is provincial. We are not on the federal scheme. That's one of the reasons we don't get a rebate. And so the commenter said it's you know just displays the inane nature of Canadian politics because the provincial carbon tax is what it is. But importantly to note is that we're renegotiating the deal. So what was once how we understood carbon tax in this province isn't necessarily what it's gonna be like after this carbon tax renewal goes through, whether we end up on the federal scheme, whether the federal backstop kicks in, because that's actually legitimately what we're negotiating right this minute, is trying to continue the exemption on the carbon tax on home-eating fuels. So a federal member of parliament representing whatever party in this province, that's actually part of the conversation. There's no guarantee that the exemption continues, which makes Mr. McDonald's vote, I think, a bit more important than people are given the credit for. Now, the motion went nowhere, and no one's surprised with that. But, yeah, there's an implication here provincially. Even though we have a provincial carbon tax structure, that's being renegotiated. So it does have some bearing on this province, believe it or not. And that conversation is not going away, as everybody is obviously aware. Okay, let's see here. Oh, Brian just replying to me. I asked him the simple question, what his teeth look like? Just curious for him to elaborate as opposed to... Uh, it wasn't a put-down, and I hope he heard it like that. So he's going to go on and see if he can find out what the potential consequences are for an ethics violation federally and so sanctions and a repayment of funds or whatever the case may be or is it simply political in nature so that we can factor it into our evaluation of one person one party or another that's a good one put forward by Brian okay let's go ahead and take a break when we come back today's a good one to get on the program with a topic of your choosing if you're in the st. johns metro region the number to dial is 273 5211 or elsewhere it's toll free long distance 1888 V. That's 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. And welcome back to the show. Every now and then, I don't know if it's coincidence or it's um, something that a number of people saw concurrently the same morning, but a half dozen emails in the last 60 minutes regarding distracted driving, something that we talk about sometimes on the show and happy to talk about it again. The one common thread through, of course, we know generally speaking when people think about distracted driving, It's about having your eyes down, looking at your cell phone. And if you're out and about, whether on your bicycle or as a pedestrian or driving your own vehicle, you see it all the time. It is way, way too common. But there are other forms. Every now and then you see one of the pictures that's intended to be funny, although it's not funny, when someone is putting on their makeup or they're eating or they're, you know, fooling around with their hair in the rearview mirror. The things that keep your eyes away from where they should be, and that's focused down the road then and i think this person's right and i know there's going to be people and in fact a couple of my friends who do this is how distracting it can be to have a dog running around on the front seat or in your lap as you drive add to it earbuds and listen to music in the earbuds when of course auditory triggers are a big part of knowing what's around you as a driver add to it again i see this and this really common is having your hood up as you drive You know, you cannot have a peripheral vision as clear as it should be if you got the hood pulled forward and you know some of the dangling material out in front of your eyeballs. So, fair enough, we can talk about the distracted driving. One email in particular goes on to make a point about some of the distractions inside the front seat of a RNC cruiser. You know, there's a computer tablet there. I, haven't, I don't know exactly how elaborate it is or how big it is, but I've seen it through the corner of my eye as you may pass, walk by, or drive past an RNC Cruiser. And, yes, there can absolutely be some distractions just simply based on the technology in those vehicles. I don't know if we – like, it would be nice to have some numbers from the RNC in particular about just how often they give out tickets for distracted driving. It'd be nice to know. And then the circumstances surrounding the distracted driving, how many were for cell phones, how many for whatever else goes on where the driver was obviously not paying attention to what they were doing. When you're operating a motor vehicle, there's probably only one thing you should be doing, and that's operating a motor vehicle. So it'd be great if the RNC has those numbers to share, just for a bit of context to the conversation. And then, of course, around here, the amount of reckless, aggressive, dangerous, fast driving is, is really something to behold. And you know what I'm talking about. We all see the same things, especially when you drive around the northeast abalone, which is obviously where I spend the, uh, the vast majority of my time, given the fact that I live and work in this part of the province. But then you see the stories like this one. A 32-year-old fellow pulled over yesterday out around Foxtrap going 160 kilometers an hour. 160 so yeah he gets a ticket license suspended vehicle impounded the big question for me would be just how long is that license suspension just how long is that vehicle impounded because if you've been driving 160 kilometers an hour which is wicked fast I don't know if I've been in a vehicle going 160 kilometers an hour on a road like a a normal piece of traffic a highway or byway But what do we do? Because if you're willing to drive it once, that's not the first time. That car has absolutely seen 160 kilometers an hour on the Speedo more than once. So it does come back to punishment. Now, severe punishment, the so-called tough-on crime, does it really add to a deterrent? In some cases, absolutely. If we're talking about serious crimes, like if you're willing or wanting to kill someone, whether or not you're facing capital punishment or not, I don't know what kind of deterrent that actually presents, but... If we're talking about infractions of the Highway Act, then if you hear stories where cop going 160 kilometers an hour meant suspension of your license was for, I don't know, I'll be uh, severe just for the purpose of uh, making a point. So your license is suspended for a year, two years. Vehicle impounded, a year. Would that cause some people to have a little peek down at their speedometer and slow down a little bit? Just imagine if you were you know, the the mom or the dad or whatever, and everyone in your household relies on that one vehicle that the family owns for everything. Getting to work, going shopping, driving people to school, driving people to work, doing whatever you do, and all of a sudden no vehicle for a year, I think we'd probably slow people down. And I do have debates in my own mind and on this program about what tough on crime and what punishment actually means to those who might be the next perpetrator. But I think in, insofar as how you operate your vehicle, I think that's one area where people would absolutely slow down. Imagine if this 32-year-old fellow is married to a 32-year-old woman and has two young children, and everybody uses the one car for everything that they do. And all of a sudden, that car is gone for a year? Now, not to break up anybody's marriage, but it might just be the reason why people are a little bit more mindful of how fast they're going, because around here, people are flying around. And we see it the same things every day. I'll simply see you at the next red light. You're going nowhere in an absolute hurry. If you're talking about driving or navigating the roads here on the Northeast Avalon, and I'm sure it's probably very similar right across the province. And, I mean, don't get anyone going on that outer Ring Road, you know, full well, that that is a racetrack in the minds of way, way too many. Someone wants a bit more information on the thoughts about... Looking at the grocery industry, of course, there's been some rumbles inside of Parliament. For instance, the NDP and and Jugmeet Singh talking about we need a government-led investigation into excessive pricing or potential price gouging. Yeah, the revenues are up and profits may indeed be up somewhat too. But of course, a lot of their inputs are also up for the grocery chains. So the story that I uh, spoke to this morning was about the fact that the Competition Bureau of Canada which is the go-to consumer watchdog in this country, they are indeed going to have a study on competition inside the industry. Some of that is able to look at things like pricing uh, excessive and or potential price gouging or price fixing. And it's not like it's never happened before. Does the bread scandal come to mind? So, of course, it has happened and we need to be protected from it. But... Their questions also get a little bit more complicated because I think when we talk about and think about grocery stores in this country, many people will think about the big major chains. You know, the go-to's. The obvious ones. When in fact, there's two distinctly different organizations representing different scale of grocer. The Retail Council of Canada, they speak on behalf and represent the major grocery chains. But there's also another group called the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers. They represent more than 6,000 independently owned and operated smaller grocery stores. There's where the competition and there's where the leverage becomes a little bit more muddy than simply wondering aloud who might be charging more in excess to, you know, past pricing schemes because they're able to fall behind the political rhetoric of inflation, for instance. So it's all about the supply, right? So if the smaller grocers, these 6,000 independent ones, reliant on their major suppliers— The unfortunate reality is the big grocery chains also have a big hand on a big lever inside of that world. Because some of the suppliers have a direct relationship with and or are owned by major grocery chains. So obviously, in an effort to protect price, protect revenue, to protect profit, that becomes a problem. And there's got to be a space for these small owned and operated grocery stores, which leads me to pressures that may lead to an impact of uh, decisions being made even at the municipal level. Had a lady call around earlier named Christy talking about the fact that the uh, municipal council in the town of Clarenville has pretty much said the only thing you can grow in your backyard, your homesteading operation, is root vegetables. This lady was growing kale and lettuce and cucumber and variety of herbs and she had greenhouse and growing tomatoes and what have you. Now, all of a sudden, you can't grow these things, which is just so bizarre. And please, if you are one of the representatives of the town council from the mayor on down in Clarenville and would like to offer the rationale as to why and how you arrived at that decision, it would be nice to hear it. Because here's what's floating around automatically when we hear these types of eventual decisions. The thought is, is that Who's driving this and why? Is this a matter of being lobbied by grocery stores to protect the sales inside your doors? If more and more people were growing more and more tomatoes and cucumbers, of course, what would be the end result? Grocery stores selling less and less. Now, is it at the point where backyard farming and homesteading is so popular that we're seeing real measurable impact inside grocery stores by selling less of whatever it is? Cucumbers and tomatoes are just throughout there once again. Because if that's the case, now that's ridiculous. This is completely and utter madness. Now, municipal politics is a little bit more shielded from some of the lobby efforts that you see aimed at the province or the provincial government and the federal government. But if that's a thought being offered by someone who's in the area and has had relations with, whether it be the grocery stores to try to find a bit of shelf space for their product and or with the municipal council. So I think it'd be wise, you know, take, you know, take that for what it's worth, for someone from Clarendonville to let us know why this is. Even things like you have to move your backyard root vegetable operation to the rear of your yard. As opposed to Christy, who called, says her operation is on the uh, side of her home because her, her backyard has so many trees that, of course, it shields from the required sunlight for a successful season. So these are fair questions being posed by her. And curiously, someone on Twitter sent me a link to that decision prior to Christy being in the queue. So obviously there's a lot of backyard farmers and homesteaders in Clarenville wondering, and fairly not, fair enough, wondering how they arrived at that decision. Okay, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, the topic, well, that's going to be up to you or more of me. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and
0: Ben Murphy. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the program. Let's see here. Let's go to line number two. Frank, here on the air. Hi, Frank.
2: I wonder uh, about this uh, GST, the remainder of our GST. Mm-hmm. Everybody was telling me it was supposed to get that in November. See, and I don't know. It where are we?
1: Yeah. So it made it through the House of Commons. It made it through the Senate. Got royal assent just a few days ago, uh, late last week. And so the thought is that it's going to be sent out, or begin to be sent out on the 4th of November.
2: The 4th of November. Oh, yeah. okay. Now, Penny, I was going to ask you another question. Sure. How about, how, how about that, uh, that uh, last time the uh, eventual government was giving us here, that right here, uh, uh, Fury and uh, Cody, the 500 dollars. When do you, when do we get
1: that? The only timeline they've offered on that one, Frank, is that before the end of the year. So I don't, I haven't seen a firm date as to when the money will start to flow. If you have a direct deposit account set up with CRA, it'll just show up in your bank account. If you don't, you'll get a check in the mail based on your 2021 filings. But no firm date that I've seen on that one.
2: Oh no, because because uh, I already got a bank account. Right? Most of all, my money goes into my bank accounts.
1: So, do you have a direct deposit set up with the uh, Canada Revenue Agency? Uh, yeah. Okay, so that'll just show up in your bank account when there's, when it starts to flow.
2: Oh, is it? All well, right, thank you. Thanks for that, Pay Appreciate
1: it. Anytime, Frank. All the best. Okay, then. Okay. I have a good day. All right, you too. Bye-bye. And so, the GST bumped, mm-hmm. and I'm sure everybody is aware. So, some 11 million Canadians get the GST checks, and so what's going to happen is if you are a single with no children, you get a bump of four hundred and sixty-seven dollars, six twelve for single parents or married or common law couples, uh, one hundred sixty-one for every child under the age of eighteen. So there's going to be that bump, and it's coming out. We're on, we're led to believe, or we're told by the federal government, that week of November the fourth. Let's go to line number one. Michelle, you're on the air.
8: Yes. Hi, Patty. Uh, hi. How are you? I'm
1: doing okay. Thanks. How are you doing?
8: Not too bad. I just want to. Uh a, make a comment or whatever um how are, are the seniors and social assistance people going to survive now the winter when we're only on a certain budget i'm only getting two hundred dollars um every every two weeks just to go out and get my groceries and uh basic things that i need and uh I went out last week to get groceries, and that was $144. And half the stuff that I had in the lineup I had to put back. So, what what I took out of the store was two bags, of them little small little bags. And um, how was that going to feed me for uh, two whole weeks? Because uh, apples were eleven something a bag, and I'm trying to eat healthy because if I don't eat eat healthy, well then it's going to cost more money for the for the uh, health care for somebody end up getting sick and going into the hospital and stuff. This five hundred dollars bit or whatever that we're going to get, that's that's fine and good, but. I think we should be getting $500 on every cheque to be able to spend at least $500 to get groceries. So I was just wondering what you thought about that.
1: Well, I've tried to talk about it uh, a couple of different ways here. It's fine, and people who are eligible for this $500, so that's everybody 18 and older earning $100,000 or less. And then there's, of course, a sliding scale to $125, where you'll get up to $250. It's a one-time thing. It does not address the long-standing issues of how much money people have in hand and how hard it is to pay the bills and eat properly and heat the home. So I get your concern. And I think you make the most important points here available, Michelle is if we're not going to have further discussion about root causes, long-term solutions, then that $500 bucks is going to feel great for as long as you got it. But once it's gone, you're right back to where you started. So for some people, who knows how people are going to spend the $500? For some, it might be close to Christmas, and it goes to Christmas gifts. Some people might put it on their credit card. Some people might just buy... Christmas liquor with it we don't know but it doesn't solve anything long term it really doesn't so that is the point that needs more and more conversation is how do we deal with the long standing problem because I don't know how people make ends meet I just do not know lucky enough to have a decent job wife works the boys work for their pocket money and I'm worried about going to the grocery store. I can only imagine if I was in your predicament with the amount of money you have to spend. So, Michelle, I wish I had an answer for you, but I'm 100% on side with you thinking and saying we need to know what the long-term plan is because you're right.
8: We definitely need to know about long-term plan because, I mean, I know that people are going out stealing the groceries and that now, and you know what? They don't care because... If if they if they get caught, they're only going. To, uh, eventually, they'll end up well down down in jail or whatever. Well, then they're off the streets. Then for the winter, they're glad to be inside. Some and,
1: of them and, would be, maybe, yeah.
8: Deal. you know, like it's shocking like two hundred dollars don't buy you very much every two weeks, and and you know what do they? We we brought a lot of people in from Ukraine, and I'm really glad that we did that. And I'm really glad that our government was there to help them out and everything. But what is our government doing to help us out? We've been here all our lives, and I've worked all my life until about eight years ago when I got sick, and it's, it's not my fault that I'm on social assistance. It's, it's just that I just can't go to work. And and also, you know, the seniors. My mother is a senior, and I mean, she's, she's worried to death. She's almost 80 years old. She's worried to death about how is she going to uh, survive every day she go she goes up to the grocery store and she'll pick up just enough for that day she walks over and walks back i mean that's if we were getting 5 or 600 dollars every two weeks well you know maybe we'd be able to get by but i'm starting to think myself now i'm going to have to start stealing groceries in order to survive the winter last winter was bad enough that i had to go and depend on a friend to bring me over some coffee. I also got a dog, but you know I've had the dog for eleven years old. He's eleven years old, so I'm not going to get rid of him now. But or anything like that. I mean, he's my best friend. But the thing is, it really got me frightened to death. And what am I going to do here? Winter, stuck in my apartment by myself and not have enough food or to get up in the morning and to put the kettle on and to, and to have a bit of milk in your coffee or to even have coffee or to get grocery bags or to or 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 toilet paper, like the basic necessities that we need, like what's our government doing is crazy. Like this $500 thing, great, that's fine. But we need that every two weeks for sure. And so do the seniors. They can't, this year, what are they going to do? Turn off their heat and go walk in the Avalon Mall all day long? You know, it's just it's absolutely got me frightened to death. Like, like I said, I'm glad the government took care of the people that came in from Ukraine, but come on, take care of take care of us too, because you know, we're the ones that've been working here all our lives. Well, me up until eight years ago, I'm only 56. If, if I'm not eating healthy, then I'm going to end up in the hospital. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I do. I understand where you're coming from, Michelle. I hope you're well. If, if sure. and when you run into some particularly tough times, get back in touch with me, okay?
8: Well, I'm in rough times now, but I mean, because, I'm, because last week I went, like I said, and I got my groceries and I had to put half of it back. It was pretty embarrassing. And I walked out of the store with two bags to feed me for two, for two whole weeks. And I'm not a smoker. I'm not a drinker. I don't buy marijuana. So I'm only buying groceries. I so understand, Chuck. There, sure. there is a problem because there's going to be more and more crime on the go and more more people stealing groceries. And the prices of, of everything has gone up way too high. I mean, I can't even imagine now. I used to have a car, uh, and I can't run a car now because even the insurance and gas and stuff like that. So I got to walk to the grocery store in the middle of the winter and walk back and co- come back with two bags for two weeks.
1: I understand your concerns, Michelle. I wish you well. Let us know uh, how yeah. you're doing in the future.
8: Okay, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for taking my call. My and pleasure. You have a nice day. You bye too, bye. Michelle. Bye-bye. Yeah, the,
1: the issue for so many, look, I mean, I've been sitting in this chair a long time, and the stories have been very similar, except things are indeed getting worse, obviously. You don't need me to tell you. You see your own bills. You see your grocery bill. You see your home heating bill, whether it be hydro or from Harveys, whatever the case may be. So for folks who struggled Last year, the year before, what do we do? And it's not all about just throwing money around, I get that all the time, but Michelle makes some pretty important points there. If and when you are going without constantly, what do you think happens? I mean, we've just completed the first round of an important body of work in the health accord to talk about the social determinants of health. There's nothing more expensive in this country than a night in the hospital. Second is a night in the prison. So if we're not doing what we can to keep you out of both settings, then we're kidding ourselves. And you know, whether someone wants to call that socialism or anything else, but you gotta have to brush up on your isms. If we are not keeping people out of the hospital, keeping them healthy as best we can, and it's never gonna be perfect, you're never gonna be able to deal with anybody and everybody's voice or purchasing habits or behaviors. But starving and freezing, in modern day Canada, The reliance of some four to five million Canadians on food banks, that is not a failure in decision-making by the individuals. That's a failure in governance. It just is. I don't like throwing money around any more than anybody else. And I don't feel like having to pay more taxes to simply throw money around. Targeted supports. Because Michelle is right. What happens if uh, there's an increase in the numbers of people who run afoul of the law is like stealing groceries. Stealing groceries, you have to think, for most who would ever entertain it, it's not because they're trying to be cheapskates. It's because they're starving, right? And they've run out of opportunities, and their quota has been met for visiting a food bank. So how we do that, I don't know. But there's an interesting announcement coming up this morning, or this afternoon at 1 p.m. where the Minister for Children, Seniors, and Social Development, John Abbott, uh, he's going to be joined by uh, Rick Colley, who's from Waypoints. They're gonna be talking about some sort of program, and I'm interested to hear the details, about a targeted basic income for youth who are receiving residential services. I think it's the beginning of that conversation, and people hate that conversation, but even if you are conservative to the bone, and small governments, and all the things that conservatives say that they're in favor of, and look, a lot of it makes sense, but let's just ask ourselves the question, how good, how well are we doing in addressing social determinants of health? That's the big money in this country. That's the big money in this province. Somewhere in the neighborhood of a third of the budget is on health care. Are we not considered or concerned with that, right? You can't at the same time be worried about access to a doctor and not worried about how many people are getting sick and some of the chronic illnesses that are pervasive and and prevalent. We're leading the league in most of them. Let's go ahead and take our final break in the morning. When we come back, you can wrap it up with a thought on anything of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. A uh, listener asking for more information about the para sledge hockey team, the para ice hockey team, the men's team that's uh, having a training camp right now in Paradise. It's been on the go for a couple of days. Ask them when they can go watch it. Happy to give the info once again because we've got two players in camp. Of course, Liam Hickey and Gavin Baggs is there, as well as the equipment manager. I believe his name is Murley. So here's the opportunity to go watch some sledge hockey, and if you've never seen it, do yourself a favor. It is really fun to watch, and it is super fast. So, the InterSquad Red and White games tomorrow, Wednesday, October the 26th, from 9:30 a.m. to 11:30 a.m. And then Thursday, the 27th, from 1.30 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. And here's the great opportunity. And all these events are free to the public. If you'd like to, for the first time or again, to sit in one of these sleds to see what it's like to play hockey in a sled with those sticks and how hard it is to go as fast as you'll see. Like, for instance, if just wait till you get a load of how fast Liam Hickey is. You can get an opportunity to go out and give it a whirl for yourself. Wednesday, again, the 26th of October, of course, at 1.30 p.m., you'll be able to do exactly exactly that and this is a big deal to have the para ice hockey team here in paradise again and as i mentioned off the top of the program we've actually had international games out there Uh, a couple years ago was it dave the international tournament was on paradise something like that and then the reference was what was i trying to say about women's uh, sledge hockey or para hockey the difference in funding between men and women's national sports is very real and you've heard the demands being made by canada's women's soccer team now they're Olympic gold medalists, right? And they don't get anywhere near the support that the men's team get, gets. And, of course, many people on the men's teams will be paying, playing some pretty well-paying jobs, playing professional soccer. In the world of women's para hockey, here's how bad it is. So they actually fundraise to get to the tournaments. And the stories from 2014 and 2018 are really quite remarkable. The jerseys they got in 2014 and 18 were hand-me-downs. Hand-me-down from the women's, as they refer to it, the stand-up team. Hand-me-downs for a national team in hockey? It's really quite something. And, of course, Hockey Canada is really almost virtually impossible to get an answer from Hockey Canada on things these days, as they are absolutely in the midst of some scandals, and it's just ridiculous and disgraceful, if you ask me. Last year, they spent some $38 million on the men's and women's national teams. In the world of para hockey, they spent $4.2 million. And we can't get a number from uh, Hockey Canada as to just how much of the $4.2 million went to the women's side. And you know, it can't be much. If they are relying on hand-me-down jerseys from what they call, not my words, what they call the stand-up teams then uh, obviously we've got ourselves a problem. The question I guess has posed in the news story I read is, you know, the numbers of men playing para hockey versus the numbers of women, and so which comes first, funding or growth in the game? I don't know why we have to pick one or the other. So if there was more funding and more support, it might be more attractive and more opportunities for young women in particular to try para hockey. To aspire to be the next Liam Hickey on the world's on the uh, women's side, and I don't know any of the players' names. I wish I did. The only one that I saw is a lady named Tracy Arnold, only because she's quoted in the news story that I made reference to earlier. So there's the difference in how funding goes towards the men's and the women's and a variety of fronts. And yes, the big story was indeed absolutely women's soccer, because remember, for the first time since 1986. Canada's men's team is back in the World Cup whereas since then Canada's women's team have been uh, world beaters right Olympic gold medalists but good luck to the Canadian men as they take to the pitch this November over in Qatar or Qatar however people pronounce it these days but there's some of the disparity on that front final check in on the Twitter box or are Open Line. follow us there our email address is openline at VOCM.com but tomorrow you get an opportunity to join us live on the air. And here's a quick one from a fellow whose handle is The Carnivore Kid. Michelle echoes is the voice of so many Canadians, and the PM spends $400,000 for our tax dollars on hotels and room service. $400,000? I thought it was, there's big questions about spending. The Prime Minister apparently was $6,000 a night at a hotel when he was over in London for the Queen's funeral. But yeah, Canadians are struggling. First world country, four to five million Canadians relying in full-on food bank is simply not good enough. All right, we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.